Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I moseyed in the Moda Center last night, and uh, full disclosure, I did it because the Backstreet Boys were in town, and I didn't want to see the Backstreet Boys. You can stop. Don't at me right now. Don't, don't give me grief. My wife wanted to go see the Backstreet Boys. I'm a supportive husband. I went to see the Backstreet Boys. And let me tell you, it was a little bit like watching an old-timers game. And I'm not just talking about the performers. I'm talking about you. That's right. You suburban lady who was out there in the crowd watching the Backstreet Boys. I have to wonder, and we'll talk to Anna about this later in the show, what the phenomenon is about. I spent a lot of time kind of looking around the building, thinking about all the things that have happened in Moda Center that were wonderful sports moments, NCAA tournament games, Blazer games, playoff games, maybe some other concerts, maybe even some UFC fights. And I thought, you know what? There's an audience, there's a market here for the Backstreet Boys. They, uh, they are on an 85-city tour. And before you feel sorry for them, just know that I did some quick math last night inside Moda Center. It's about $2 million in ticket sales alone last night. They're on to Vancouver, B.C. tonight. And when I was in my 20s, the Backstreet Boys were not cool. It was not cool to listen to a Backstreet Boys song or acknowledge you had a Backstreet Boys song on your playlist or to uh, even know a lyric of the Backstreet Boys. And, and to my credit, I got to tell you, like last night as they were playing their songs, there was only about two songs I really knew. And... Uh, to my uh, detriment, I realized that I was one of the few men inside the building. It was like going to see the Sex in the City movie. I went to see the Sex in the City movie with Anna back in the day as well, and I got stuck holding the door as the movie theater was emptying. I said, oh, I'm going to hold the door for the lady who's behind me. And then I realized there's another lady behind her, and then there's another woman behind her, and then there was another woman and another woman and another woman, and I realized, like, I'm the only guy in this theater and I am essentially the doorman here. It was the same, essentially the same experience last night at Moda Center. It was the final day of my vacation, you know, uh, as I uh, start to ramp up for college football season, NFL season, this radio show. I just, you know, I went on vacation with the family. I got to acknowledge to you that it isn't doesn't feel like much of a vacation when the Pac-12 conference is in such uh, dire position and. We got reports out there about Oregon potentially uh, exploring uh, the Big Ten Conference. Of course they are. They would be dumb not to have those back-channel discussions. I'm sure that that's what it's about. I'm not convinced that the Big Ten Conference is going to make a move imminently. I I think a lot of it hinges upon Notre Dame. And if Notre Dame uh, chooses to stay independent, which I think they will, uh, what would happen on the college football landscape beyond that? I don't know. I think maybe we might be in a bit of a holding pattern for several years. But we'll talk to Brett McMurphy of the Action Network, who broke the news about Oregon and the potential of Oregon back-channeling with 
the Big Ten Conference. We'll talk to John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group on today's show to get a Pac-12-centric feel for what is going on. And I want a bunch of your phone calls as well. If you're tuning in and or you're listening live to the show, streaming it or tuning in across the Pac-12 footprint, I want to know kind of where your head is. College football fans, I think, have to be a little bit frustrated with this offseason, maybe a lot frustrated. You've watched tradition and geography get thrown out the window. You've watched uh, USC and UCLA essentially give the Pac-12 conference the middle finger. They didn't, uh, they didn't talk to George Klyovkov and say, hey, look, you know, we need a little more money. We'd like to have a larger percentage of the revenue as we move forward. No, 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 no. USC and UCLA just left in the cover of the night and then uh, dealt with the UC Regents afterwards. And so as I watch all of this unfold, I'm left feeling a little flat when it comes to the season that is going to start. And, I'm, and the season is the whole reason why we get excited about college football. The season isn't about who's going to play in what conference. The season is what does your team do today on the field. I talked to Mario Cristobal, the former Oregon coach, over the weekend. I was writing this piece on Noah Sewell, the Oregon linebacker. If you subscribe at johnconzano.com, you got it delivered to your email inbox on Sunday morning. You saw it in real time. If you don't subscribe, you should get there immediately and just uh, grab a free subscription, grab a paid subscription, whatever works for you. That's what you do. But I, I uh, texted Mario Cristobal on Sunday morning, and I was asking about Noah Sewell. And within a few minutes, my phone starts lighting up with a FaceTime video request from Mario Cristobal. It's a surreal experience when you're not expecting a FaceTime call. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's your mom. I don't care if it's a coworker. I don't care who it is. You're sitting in the comfort of your home. In our case, we were in central Oregon taking that vacation, and but I was still writing, and we're sitting in Sun River, and all of a sudden, my phone is lighting up, and it is a video call from Mario Cristobal. Now, this has happened to me before. I had... Years ago, during the pandemic, in the early parts of the pandemic when football got canceled, got a similar call at about 11.30 at night from Mike Leach. The former Washington State coach was at Mississippi State. The games had been canceled. Leach was sitting at his house. He was having a cocktail. And he decided, for whatever reason, on a Saturday night at like 11.30 to FaceTime me. Now, I'm not totally comfortable FaceTiming anyone. Like, even my own children, when they FaceTime, the calls end up being them making funny faces, them saying funny things, me sitting on the other end going, point the camera at your face. Uh, but if my mother FaceTimed me, I would think it was an odd thing to do. Like, I don't really want to have that video conversation with my mom. I want to have a phone call with my mom. It's more traditional. I don't want to have a FaceTime with Mario Cristobal, especially when I'm on vacation and I'm sitting in shorts and a T-shirt. And by the way, I had on this Space Monkey T-shirt. friend of mine, Brian Capel, has his company Space Monkey Designs. He gave me this T-shirt. It's a monkey with a space helmet on. And now all of a sudden, I got Mario Cristobal calling me. I haven't shaved. I haven't showered. I'm sitting on the sofa. I'm on vacation. And all of a sudden, I got to take this phone call from Mario Cristobal. So... I straighten up. I kind of wipe the sleep from my eyes. It was early on Sunday morning. I'm writing this column on Noah Sewell, and I was expecting a phone call from Cristobal or a text back. I just asked him. I said, hey, tell me something about Noah Sewell that you'd never told anybody before. And all of a sudden, or whatever that sound is, I'm getting the FaceTime call from Mario Cristobal. So I debated in that moment, do I just not pick it up? And, you know, you, we've all been there. When somebody's FaceTiming you and you're not really somewhere where you can talk or maybe you're not 
you know, maybe you're not in a position, maybe you're getting out of the shower, you're not going to take that call. So I straightened myself up, I kind of looked at my surroundings, and I hit the accept button, and up on my phone screen pops Mario Cristobal, the University of Miami football coach. He is presenting as he always presents. He is shaved, he is showered, he is in a polo shirt that is a University of Miami emblem on his chest. He's sitting behind a desk. It looks to me like Mario Cristobal has the setup all set up that he does for recruits. And I am told he does this with recruits. Like, Cristobal will FaceTime the recruits. He finds that much more personal. Well, apparently he wanted to see my smiling face. And the first thing out of his mouth after he sees me is he says, nice shirt, which, you know, is a jab at me for wearing the Space Monkey shirt. Now, uh, maybe I should get him a Space Monkey shirt and send it to him. But the larger point is... We end up in this phone conversation talking about kind of the landscape of college football. It's not at all what we should be talking about, even as we're FaceTiming. And I don't know how comfortable I am FaceTiming another grown man anyway that isn't related to me, but I'm having this FaceTime conversation with Cristobal, and he's talking about where Miami is positioned. He likes where Miami's positioned, what's going to happen to Oregon, and we're just talking like two people sitting at a bus stop having a conversation about the future of Pac-12 football. What we, we should have been talking about is, hey, how many games how many games do you think uh, Miami's going to win this year? How many games are you guys going to win? How good are you feeling about your season? Uh, how are you feeling about your quarterbacks? What do you think about Oregon? Offensive line, is it, do they have enough? Did you leave enough in the cupboard for Oregon to compete? Like all of the questions, the normal things that we should have been talking about, we weren't talking about. Why? Because television has invaded this college football season. It has stolen the joy out of this college football season, at least the end part of the offseason. And it has everybody anxious about where the teams are going to play, how things are going to work out, how it's all going to go. And in the end, I think it's really disappointing and it's sad and it's taking away a little bit of the joy that I normally have every late August, third week of August or so, as starting quarterbacks are starting to be named and we get 10 or 12 or 14 days away from the season openers. Oregon's going to Georgia on September 3rd. Oregon State's going to open up at home against Boise State. There's a bunch of Pac-12 games that are relevant. Utah's going to Florida. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we could be talking about. And instead, for crying out loud, who do I have booked on today's show? Brett McMurphy. Now, I love Brett McMurphy. I love Brett McMurphy. He's a great reporter. He's the guy that was all over the whole Ohio State Urban Meyer story a few years ago. He's a really good reporter. We've had him on the show. Much respect for Brett McMurphy. Love talking to the guy. I just don't necessarily want to be talking all have our whole our whole show and this all the conversations center around who what's going to happen to Oregon what's going to happen to the Pac-12 what is the Big Ten going to do is Kevin Warren tonight on HBO Real Sports how is his interview going to go over how are people going to read that and react to it and oh by the way you know no official confirmation from Oregon that anybody at Oregon has talked with anybody with the Big Ten conference Kevin Warren not involved in those conversations Oregon's athletic director, Rob Mullins, not involved in those conversations. Oregon's outgoing president, Michael Schill, not involved in those conversations. And so we're left with some back-channeling that has gone on that essentially creates all of this hand-wringing and angst among the fan bases. And for crying out loud, can we talk some football at some point? I'm going to make it the aim of this show to deal with the news. We're going to deal with it. We're going to talk to Brett McBurphy. We're going to talk to John Wilner. I'm going to tell you what I know. I've talked to a whole bunch of Pac-12 athletic directors in the last week that told me things that don't necessarily line up 
with the disintegration of this conference. You know, people want, you know, saying the end of the world is coming. Chicken Little is running wild in college football right now. But the truth is we have to remember that the core of college football is the actual college football games themselves. And for the next two years, even the next two years, as Ohio State and UCLA and everybody are playing in the conferences they're supposed to be playing in, uh, for the next two years, this college football landscape will be, uh, you know, hey, it, everybody keeps saying it's not your grandfather's college football. Well, it is for the next two years. Ohio State will be in the Big Ten. UCLA and USC will be in the Pac-12. Oklahoma and Texas, they haven't got yet gone to the SEC. BYU's not in the Big 12 yet. It is your grandfather's college football still, and we're going to talk about it and treat it as such. Brett McMurphy's coming up. I encourage you, if Mario Cristobal tries to FaceTime you, to pick it up. It was a pleasant conversation. He uh, seems to be doing well. He seems happy. He says his kids are adjusting. We had a nice talk. Uh, I'll share more of what we talked about. But uh, I also think, like, hey, don't FaceTime me. Friends, do not FaceTime me. I'd rather have a phone call or a text conversation or an in-person conversation with you. You got the bald-faced truth. I am fired up for college football, if you can't tell. Brett McMurphy is coming up. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm excited about college football. And if you follow college football, the games are starting in, oh, about five sleeps from now. Brett McMurphy of the Action Network, great follow on Twitter, great read uh, at the Action Network headquarters. He's been on this show before. He joins us again. Brett McMurphy, uh, I'm excited the games are starting. Are you ready for games? I am, John, but I know you brought me on here to talk about the Sun Belt, so let's get started. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, hey, hey, I, I saw uh, your... Yeah. Real quick, I, I, tried to, I saw you in L.A. at Tackle Media Days. I wanted to come up and say hi, but every time I turned around, you were interviewing somebody, so I didn't want to be the guy that interrupts an interview. So I did see you out there, and uh, thanks for having me back on. Yeah, you bet, man. I think you do a hell of a job. And, you know, I read your bowl predictions, projections today. I love that you are, you know, steering the conversation, uh, some of the conversation back towards the games and the seasons and the teams because that's what I'm in it for. Uh, What jumped out at you or what are you getting grief from when it came to your bowl projections? Which fan base is mad at you today? (laughs) There's 131 schools, so 130 are pissed off. Alabama's the only one because I've got them, you know, winning the national championship. But that's the beauty of it. I mean, and look, I always tell people, if you don't like my bold projections, well, just wait till next week and they'll likely change. But, you know, doing these, I, I mentioned that, you know, when I get to the final week of the season last year, it was incredible. I ended up on Selection Sunday uh, about an hour before they were released. I hit 92% which was probably I'll never achieve that again. But I, I warn people that the preseason bowl projections are a lot closer to 9% accuracy. So don't book, uh, don't book those airline flights just yet based on my bowl projections. You got Mario Cristobal making the playoff in your initial projections, Miami getting yeah. there. What do you like about his team right now? Well, I mean, you know, you know Mario and, and – I just think Miami's going to have such a different attitude with him there. He got rid of the turnover chain. They don't want to be a bunch of flash and 
all that. There's, I think there's a lot more substance there. They're going to be a lot tougher team. You know, his background as an offensive line coach, uh, he's really excited about the offensive line. And they've got one of the – in a league that arguably has the best group of quarterbacks in the country, they've got one of the best in Tyler Van Dyke. And, you know, picking that number four team, I, I literally could have gone with a dozen teams. I could have gone with Oregon. I could have gone with Utah. Uh, you know, there's a number of teams I could have gone with. The, the top three are pretty obvious, Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia. doesn't mean that's how it's going to end up at the end of the year. But to, for that fourth spot, I just I think the ACC is wide open. I don't think Clemson's going to get back to the title game. I actually like NC State better than Clemson. I like Miami a little bit better. So I just, you know, hey, it's, it's early. Take a flyer. Um, if I'm right, I'm a genius. If not, well, people will call me, you know, worse names than I've, I've heard before, so I'm not worried about it. You got Utah and Michigan in the Rose Bowl. I'd love to see that game. I actually, I think Utah is going to go to Florida and win in in Week One. What do you think about Utah this season? I love Utah. I, I picked them. Uh, they made me look smart. I picked them to win the Pac-12 last year. I'm picking them again this year to win the Pac-12. I mean, this is a critical game. Not, not you know, for it's not obviously going to do anything to their Pac-12 hopes or anything. But as far as the college football playoff, you've got. Utah going to Florida, you got, you know, Oregon playing a, quote, neutral game against Georgia. And these are tremendous opportunities for those two schools because, you know, we can break down the college football playoffs selection committee and what they've done the past eight years. Bottom line, it boils down to this. If you got two losses, you're out. So if Oregon or Utah loses this opener, they basically got to run the table to have a realistic shot to get in a college football playoff. I don't think either squad will run the table no matter what happens in the opener. I think, you know, maybe Alabama runs the table, Ohio State. Other than that, I think everybody will have at least one loss. So this is a huge game for Utah. And, I'm look, I'm based here in Tampa, Florida. It is humid. <laughs> I want to stress that. Uh, the good news is it's a night kickoff. But how much will that weather impact the youth? I think they're the better team. But, again, it's it's a tough road game. It's it's a trip across the country. And, and I'm excited, like you, I'm excited to finally see some games and let some of this other uh, off-the-field stuff kind of take a back seat so we can actually uh, see some of these guys and, and teams playing. Nick Saban gets a big deal, a big extension from Alabama. You know, we're talking about a guy who's had $100 million plus in earnings and – yeah, I thought it was really interesting to see, you know, he gets an eight-year deal, $94 million, highest paid coach in college football. A lot of the comments were he's underpaid. How does that strike you, Brett McMurphy? I've been saying that for several years. I, I agree with that a thousand percent. And I know the first reaction is, what are you talking about? He's going to be making $94 million over the last eight, over the next eight years. People people have short memories because before Nick Saban got to Alabama, they were, you look in the dictionary, under dumpster fire, and that was Alabama's program. They were horrible. They had gone through the Mike Price fiasco. Uh, Mike Shula was there. Uh, you could go on and on. They, they were, weren't going to bowl games every year. Forget about competing for the national championship. They couldn't even get bowl eligible. So what does Saban come in and do? He changes he changes college football. He changes the University of Alabama. And I would love – I don't know if there's any way to, you know, accurately 
project or figure out how much he has meant to the university, dollars and cents-wise. But I guarantee you that $94 million that they're paying him over the next eight years, that's a bargain for the amount of publicity he's given the program, for the number of buildings that have been built because of Saban. And I'm not talking about athletic buildings, the buildings across campus, for what he's done for Tuscaloosa, the city of Tuscaloosa, how it's grown. I mean, again, I agree with those people who say he's underpaid because he he could make double that at Alabama, and you could argue that he's made more than – more than that much for the school and meant, meant that much to the school. And I, it sounds weird. I don't think people really appreciate the job he's done. I think it'll be one of those things where after he finally steps down, which, you know, probably won't be in my lifetime, but whenever that day comes, I think then people may take a look back and go, Jesus, I don't believe that. They were ranked number one every year for, for 15 straight years. They went to the college football playoff every single year but one. They did – you know, now it's just expected, and you just kind of grow uh, accustomed to it. And I don't think I, – I know it sounds weird that he doesn't get the credit he deserves, but I think people kind of just take it for granted. And it, it's it's similar but different to how Florida State had that run where they went finished in the top four 14 consecutive years. And while it happened, you're just kind of like, man, this is kind of cool. And then finally Bobby Bowden steps down, and you take a look back, and you're like, wow, how did they do that? I think the same thing, people will look at Saban the same way. And if there was ever any debate who the best coach in college football was, he's, he's ended that argument a couple of years ago. Brett McMurphy is our guest, Action Network. You can read him there, follow him on Twitter as well. Brett, let's talk about expansion, what it means. You had the report yesterday uh, that there's some back-channeling going on between Oregon and the Big Ten Conference. Do you have a sense of how serious this is, how – is it a formality? Is, are these sides just kind of feeling each other out? Like, what is the motivation, all of that? No, it, it's serious, John. And, and, I, you know, I guess, you know, when I reported it and I said, you know, wanted to make clear that, you know, Oregon's president and, and Rob Mullins weren't there and neither were Kevin Warren, people were like, well, how serious of meetings could these be? You know, are these just cut some boosters going out for beers? No, this is legit stuff. But you know what? It's it's lawyers, and it's those kind of people kind of just getting together and, you know, pardon the pun, but making sure all the ducks are in a row. And it's just one step of the process. It happened with USC and the Big Ten. It happened with OU and Texas and the SEC. The only difference was it never got out with those schools. We didn't learn about the process of this until, this. well, with USC, UCLA, literally the day it got announced. OU Texas leaked a little bit earlier. And so, no, John, this is just a step in the process. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that have to be figured out. But sources have been telling me since July, last month, that Oregon, Washington, Stanford, and Cal, obviously Notre Dame is at the top of that list, have been identified by the Big Ten as schools that they would bring in. The Big Ten has done all their homework on these schools, and now it's just kind of getting – getting everyone together and figuring this out and seeing how, how this would work. And then once they get to that point in this process, you know, could take weeks, it could take months. Um, then I, I fully expect, again, based on what my sources have been telling me the last month, what they've been telling me the last week, what they've been telling me this week, that this will happen. And, you know, all you have to do is, you don't believe me, watch real sports, on HBO tonight with Bryant Gumbel. He interviewed Kevin Warren. It was taped last week. 
he was asked point blank, do you foresee the Big Ten going to 20 schools? Kevin did not say maybe. He did not say, we'll look, about, we'll look at it, we'll think about it. He said yes. So if you're going to get the 20, do you want to add the four schools when USC and UCLA come on board in 2024? Because that would make the most seamless transition. And also a big criticism has been, well, look at the travel issues with USC and UCLA. Well, how do you solve that? Well, of course, you add schools on the West Coast. That limits USC and US, UCLA's travel greatly. And I think, again, it's not that I think they're going to do. That's what sources are telling me that they will do. And your next question probably is a timeline. That's the question I cannot get answered by anybody. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow. I don't know if it's going to be next week. I don't know if it's going to be next month or next year. But all I'm being told is, the Big Ten is not done expanding, and after Notre Dame, those Pac-12 schools are at the top of their list. How how viable is Notre Dame as a conference member in the Big Ten? Meaning, if I Brad, if I put you as an advisor to Notre Dame, and you you know you know they can get to the playoff as an independent, you know they can get the money they probably need in media rights as an independent. Would you advise them? What is the upside for jumping into the Big Ten, or should they stay independent? Well, see, that would be impossible because you're not, I'm not part of the Notre Dame culture or history. Um, they look at, and I guess a way to explain that is Notre Dame views its independence kind of the way that the Pac-12 views the Rose Bowl. Um, it's, unless you've experienced it, and I've been fortunate enough to cover the Rose Bowl, uh, actually was out there, I believe, the last time Oregon won it. You, people can't understand how special it is and what it means to, to that community and the Pac-12 and, and Big Ten conferences. So Notre Dame, they're very proud about being an independent. But you nailed it. I think what it comes down to is can Notre Dame get the same ballpark financially as being an independent with NBC doing their new deal? And more importantly probably is – What's their path to the college football playoff? We don't know what the new playoff is going to look like. How how important will it be to be affiliated with the conference? If that isn't an issue, then I think they would prefer to stay an independent. However, one thing that could force them into being in the Big Ten is if the Big Ten goes to 20 schools, the SEC is going to get to 20 at some point if these ACC schools can get out of their grant of rights. Well, who is Notre Dame actually going to be playing if those two leagues, at that point, they'll be playing make, they'll be playing 10 conference games. There's no way they won't be. So now, who's Notre Dame going to play? Is NBC really going to pay $60 million to see Notre Dame play Ball State every week? No, they're not. So at that point, um, Notre Dame may figure out, you know, look, we're going to run out of people to play. And, oh, by the way, a lot of schools we've historically played, Stanford, USC, Michigan, Michigan State are now all conference games. Um, we're going to be in the three biggest media markets in the country, Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York. So then it maybe it makes more sense. But I think at the end of the day, they would prefer a state an independent until the end of time. But things are changing so much, they may have to go ahead and reluctantly uh, join the Big Ten, um, kicking and screaming while they take that, you know, Seventy to $100 million uh, media rights deal every year. Brett McMurphy, Action Network, is with us. One of the issues that came up early when we started talking to 
consultants or, you know, former Fox Sports Network's president, Bob Thompson, told me, look, Oregon just doesn't bring the value. You can't get the justification. They are dilutive to the Pac-12 conference, you know, excuse me, to the Big Ten conference. How do you, how does the Big Ten get around that? How does it make it work to bring on a Washington or an Oregon or a Stanford when it doesn't pencil out at 70 million plus in media rights value? Well, yeah, that's right. It's funny. I was just going back and forth with Bob in a, in a very friendly uh, banter on Twitter. Um, but, no, he's, he's absolutely right. But the, the thing is, that's what – I'm sure that's what a lot of these discussions are about yeah. right now between Oregon and the Big Ten is, okay, Oregon, you don't bring the same value as USC and UCLA or at least USC. So if we bring you in, the slices of the pie are going to be smaller. Well, so the current Big Big Ten members don't want to make less money. So how can they keep the same amount of money and then we bring in some other programs that aren't going to bring in the same value? So how does that work? Well, there's a number of ways you can do that. Oregon, Washington, Stanford, Cal would would not get a full share, potentially. Rutgers and Maryland didn't get full shares when they were brought in. They had to work their way up. And then the first reaction, I'm sure, is, well, USC and UCLA got full shares. Well, that's different. They brought the L.A. market to the Big Ten and increased the value of the deal. Or is there some way that, you know, if only Oregon had some, like, really rich alumni that <laughs> could, you know, perhaps he could help out Oregon and kind of uh, compensate whatever the difference may be between a full share and not having a full share. Um, there's a, there's a number of ways they can work with that. Um, and then, you know, if everyone, well, why would they do that? They're not getting treated equally as USC or UCLA. Well, the alternative is, is stay in a PAC 12 and you're still going to make substantially less money in a PAC 12. And, and I, I, I believe this from what sources are telling me. I don't like this, but I think the future of the Pac-12 hinges on the Big Ten. And if the Big Ten, unless they have a dual 180 and decide not to add those Pac-12 schools, I don't. I hate this, but I don't see the Pac-12 surviving because then you're going to have the corner schools. Look at the Big 12. The Big 12 has been aggressive in pursuing those schools because then if you're part of those corner schools and you're left, left with a 16 conference, you can tell me whatever Mountain West teams you want to add, they are not going to have the same meteorites value as the Big 12. And so do you want to stay in that league, or would you rather go to a power league with 16 members or kind of a pack 6 or 8 or 10 or whatever numbers they get up to, adding anywhere from 2 to 4 Mountain West teams? I just think at that point the corner schools go to the Big 12, and then unfortunately, and I hate this because I love Jonathan Smith, but I hate this because then what's going to happen to Oregon State and Washington State? Yeah, and I, I think you're right. If the Pac-12 loses Oregon, I think everyone runs for the hills. And I think George Klyovkov's got a tough job right now, and you know he's trying to negotiate a meteorites deal with ESPN. What should the Pac-12's approach be on the short term, Brett? Because they, their aim has to be to keep Oregon in the fold but they also probably are going to have to give up some leverage to Oregon and allow Oregon to have some exit built into that package in the event that the Big 12 just goes, hey, we're not ready to expand now, we're waiting on Notre Dame, could be a year, could be five years. 
Uh, what should the big Pac-12 be doing or thinking about with this media rights deal? I mean, John, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know the answer. Like, I don't know. In, you know, I, I feel for George, and it's, you know, Greg Sankey could be the commissioner of the Pac-12. Kevin Warren could be the commissioner of the Pac-12. You're only as strong as the schools in your in your league for for the length of your grant of rights. And if you're Oregon, if you're Washington, if you're Stanford, you're Cal. What incentive do you have to sign? I've been told it would probably be a five to six year deal. What incentive do you have to sign a five or six year contract when you know you may get an offer the next day, the next week, the next month to go to a different conference that's going to pay you twice as much money? That's that's very difficult. It's it's almost impossible. I don't know what the Pac-12 can do because they're hampered so much by geography. What's what's weird is, and I'm a alum from Oklahoma State, so I'm you know Big 12 ties. The Big 12 was in the same position as the Pac-12 last year when they lost OU in Texas, and the Pac-12 could have delivered the death blow to the Big 12 by taking some Big 12 schools and going to the Pac-12. And then even if you would have lost schools to the Big Ten, you still would have survived. The other Big Ten schools would have scattered and joined the American or Mountain West or whatever, but the Pac-12 would have survived. Well, the Pac-12 decided to stay put because the Big 12 schools didn't add value. That makes sense. But now we're to the point, and I say this as an alum of a Big 12 school, the reason the, the Big 12's in more stable ground is because nobody wants their schools. Big Ten doesn't want anybody from the from the Big 12. SEC already got OU in Texas. They could have anybody they want in that league. That's the only two they wanted. So they're not going to get picked off by anybody. So there's actually more stability there. So kind of what you were saying is if an Oregon leaves, and I think it'll be Oregon and Washington. I don't think Oregon goes solo. Oregon and Washington leave, then what's the incentive for the other schools to leave knowing, you know, there are, there, some of these schools are just a call away from the, the Big Ten or, a, or a, you know, friend request on Facebook, and they're gone. You know, these other schools got to look out for themselves. And I understand right now everyone's saying we're working together, we're doing everything we can to stay together. I really believe that. I, I totally do. But it's, you know, like you're committed 100% to your job, but then if somebody rolls in and offers you two or three times, uh, the amount of money and better incentives and better security for your family and all that, you know, suddenly you're, you're committed to something else. So it, it's a hard, hard position the Pac-12 is in, and I hope I'm wrong, but I think if the Big Ten makes this move, the other schools will, will eventually end up in the Big 12. And, I, I, you know, the Pac-12 has been around for 107 years. I don't know if they'll be around 110, and I hope I hope I'm wrong because I hate I cover conference realignment, but I hate what it's done. I hate what it's done to college athletics going all the way back to, you know, we used to have the WAC and the Southwest Conference, and you know now I'm getting all misty eyed thinking about no. this. But <laughs> I'm kidding. the same but, way. Yeah, yeah I co- just, I covered the WAC. Yeah, I mean, it, hell, it sucks. But <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. But bottom line is, money talks, and follow the money. Schools are going to do what's best for the schools conferences are going to do what's best for their conference and if it means the conference is going to go away oh by the way the acc rated the Big East. that's why there's no Big East in football anymore brett mcmurphy i appreciate you follow him on twitter i appreciate you giving us some of your time hey you got it john we'll break down the sunboat next time buddy next next time we'll get after it brett thank you my friend <laughs> there he is from the action network it's good stuff i want your reaction to it 
And I agree with I agree with the core of what Brett McMurphy is saying. I, I agree if the Big Ten comes calling and says to Oregon, Washington, uh, say, look, hey, we need to take in. Uh, let's let's do it. I think Oregon and Washington are going to jump at it. I'm having a hard time, though, with the Big Ten's logic. Does it does the calculus work? Do the media rights valuations work? It feels to me that they would have to subsidize Oregon and Washington. And it's why I think in this cycle, and I keep saying in this cycle, I do think the Pac-12 is going to stick together. And I think Brett McMurphy said, you know, it's, is it a week? Is it two years? Is it three years? I think it's more of a question from three to five to seven years from now on whether or not this conference is going to survive. What I am hearing in the short term is encouraging for those of you who would like the Pac-12 to continue to be the Pac-12. But I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575. You weigh in. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Not buying everything Brett McMurphy's selling, but I don't blame him for reporting what his sources are telling him. Can I live with that? Yes. I'm being told by Pat... 12 athletic directors that of course they are galvanized they're moving in one direction but do i think for a minute if oregon left for the big 10 conference that the pac-12 would stay together i don't i just don't think oregon's leaving not in this cycle i think the pac-12 will pull together and part of it is i just don't think the pac-12 teams move the needle for the big 10 conference i want to take your phone calls 503-417-7575 let's go to roy who's in portland roy welcome to the conversation Hey John, I totally agree with you, man. I don't. I'm not buying nothing. Brett Man Murphy sell, selling. Uh, with all due respect, I, I I think he's trying to get clicks and eyes over his action network, man. What he's saying makes absolutely no sense. I mean, the big the, uh, uh, like I was telling the uh, the uh, your guy that answered the phone, it'd be the equivalent, John. You owning a company, right? You got ten employees that work for you. They're all getting paid well around the same amount of money. They're all getting paid exactly the same. Now, you tell your 10 employees, guess what? You're going to have to take a pay cut because I want to hire four more employees that don't bring as much value as you do, but I just want to bring them on. They're not going to be making as much money as you're making, but I just want to bring them on, and you're going to have to take a pay cut. How would your employees feel? The, 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 the Big Ten team's not taking a pay cut for Oregon and, and Washington. They don't bring anything. It's all about money and revenue. With all due respect, Oregon and Washington, you have a better chance. I don't understand what the Pac-12 is doing. Go get San Diego State. Go get UNLV. You have a better name recognition than the Big 12 does. Uh, people would, would watch uh, Stanford and Oregon and Oregon State over anything the Big 12 has to offer. So, I mean, you're not that bad. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what Oregon and Washington, I don't know if people are actually thinking, think they're going the, the alums or, uh, or the administration, but it makes no sense. I don't think the Big 12, I don't think the Big 10 is expanding outside of Notre Dame. And if they do, it's going to be a market play, TV market, like a Georgia Tech for Atlanta, right in the heart of SEC country, SEC country or University of Virginia. You get the D.C. market. You got it with Maryland, but you get more of the D.C. market or the or North Carolina for the Charlotte market. I mean, it's all about adding more revenue. I mean, it just—I I, I, don't—I don't believe for one second <laughs> that 
he's talking to somebody and he knows Oregon and Oregon. Those teams are – I don't believe the Big Ten wants Oregon. They don't want Oregon. No, no, no disrespect to Oregon and Washington. But like you said, they don't bring – they don't move the needle enough for the pack, for the Big Ten teams, even if they do – even if they don't get a full full share, the other teams still got to take less. And they're not going to do that. And so I, I, I think it's just – I think it's just a bunch of nothing. I, I don't think they're going to expand. I think the Pac-12 is, is in a good position. Like I said, go get San Diego State, go get UNLV, and just and, and work out a TV deal. You're not going to cut out the whole western part of the country. I mean, in football, they, the, the TV networks are not going to leave that money on the table. Appreciate the phone call. I agree with a lot of what you're saying, Roy. I am pumping the brakes a little bit on anybody outside of San Diego State right now if you're the Pac-12 conference. And here's what I think is going to happen in the short term. Uh, The Pac-12, I'm being told the Pac-12 is having productive discussions with ESPN. I think that's what they're going to say as long as they continue to talk. I think they like the direction it's headed. I definitely think that there are some crossover games that ESPN wants to put together with the ACC to help sprinkle some additional funds on the ACC. But I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a little bit of quiet between now and Labor Day. And then I think you're going to have after Labor Day, in the days after it, you're going to have some kind of announcement that the Pac-12 is going all in with ESPN. I don't think that Notre Dame is going to stop being an independent. As long as they can get to the playoff, as long as they can get $70 million plus from NBC or whoever, I think Notre Dame is happy to not have to play Penn State and Ohio State and Michigan, happy to not have to play Georgia and Alabama and LSU, and can still get into a 12-team playoff and collect a $100 million check for doing so. Notre Dame's going not going to the Big Ten. I don't think that's going to happen unless the SEC and the Big Ten get in the way and say, hey, we're not going to play you. You're going to have to play a bunch of Pac-12 schools. You're going to have to play a bunch of uh, mid-majors uh, during your season. We're not going to help you get to the playoff. Now, if that happens, maybe it gives Notre Dame pause. But I don't think it's going to happen, and I think Notre Dame does covet their independence. So then it becomes a question of subsidization. Would the Big Ten subsidize Oregon and Washington just to take them? And I don't think so. Like, you might, if you're Kevin Warren or you're Fox or NBC or CBS, want Washington and Oregon in the conference. You might, if you're UCLA and USC, want Oregon and Washington in the conference because now you don't have to travel. But if you are Minnesota, if you are Purdue, if you are Iowa, do you want another obstacle to hurdle? And do you want to have to share your revenue from your media rights deal? And I think that's where the logic of it all falls apart for me. And I, and I get it. I understand that Kevin Warren wants to turn college football into the NFL light. But I have news for him. The NFL, as it is, prints money because it is the premier sports football league and sports league. I think if college football tries to be the NFL, it's going to become evident pretty quickly that it's not quite the NFL and it's not as good and not as talented. And, oh, my gosh, there's no parody like the NFL has. And so I think it falls flat in that way. I also think ESPN is the king. It's the kingmaker here. ESPN can can save the Pac-12 or the Big 12 or both of them by coming in full force and saying, look, we're going to, these are the conferences that we're going to support. I want more of your phone calls. Mark in Portland's going to lead us off after the break. 503-417-7575.
Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. How about your phone calls? We had Brett McMurphy on the show. Uh, John Wilner will be joining us in hour two. I think it'll be a very different conversation. But what do you think about the Pac-12 conference future? And, and Oregon fans, do you want your team in the Big Ten conference? Or are there some of you pumping the brakes on this? I'm here to tell you that I'm not surprised that there's back-channeling going on. I think it's happening probably at most of the Pac-12 universities and probably most of the Power 5 universities, frankly, is UCLA and USC triggered a lot of angst and conversation about who should join which conference. I'm not buying the imminent departure of Oregon from the Pac-12. I could be wrong, but I'm not buying it at this point. Let's go to Mark in Portland. I'll take your phone calls as well at 503-417-7575. Mark, go ahead. Hey, with with my team and my conference, I just I want to know, like in every other sport on the planet, I, my team and conference, their champion controls their own destiny. I want to remind people, you know, until 1998, the AP, you guys picked the national champion, and then in 1998, they they created the most corrupt system probably in the history of sports, the BCS, where we don't even have to go through the. Uh, non-conference champions played in title games when Oregon and USC were shafted for teams that didn't even win their conference. Or when Alabama won back-to-back titles without playing anybody else's conference champion. They didn't win their own conference, and then they got a second chance at LSU, and no other conference was involved. And Then the following year, they beat independent Notre Dame. And now, you know, we're being told, unless unless you got the bucks, you know, we, we don't have any interest in you. So, there's never going to be a Cinderella story in college football. It's completely different than every other team sport on the planet, including women and men. We're never going to have a Villanova or a North Carolina State yep. like we did in the yep. NBA. We're never Mark, going to I, I got to get to break. I know what you're saying. I, you were losing what's beautiful about sports, and I think you're right about it. More ahead. Leave it here. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. I'm going to make a confession. I was at Moda Center last night for the Backstreet Boys. Go ahead, guys. Get it all out of your system. Steven, Sean, Judah, Peter, get it all out of your system. Go ahead. I, I, don't, I don't, I'm not judging you. I'm not judging. I I told Sean this. My first CD was actually a Backstreet Boys CD. I was in fifth grade. Man. So I, you know, I knew a lot of people because that's my you know, my age group. A lot of people yeah. went to that concert last night. So I can't I can't judge too much. I saw a whole bunch of your wives out there, listeners, screaming their for their ba- favorite Backstreet Boy last night at Moda Center. I was. Uh, I was marveling a little bit at the idea that these guys are in their 40s and 50s now. Like, you don't often want to see that. You know, you don't, you know, nothing, look, aging, I'm not one of these people that says, you know, oh, aging's terrible, getting old sucks, all this stuff that people say. You know, some people can age gracefully. I think there's a lot you can do. There's a book out there called Younger Next Year. It's a pretty good book. And it's about how you can put in the work in your 30s and 40s and 50s that will make your 60s and 70s and 80s a whole lot easier. Like, it, it's just common sense. If you're in better shape, you know, if you're 
if you're uh, exercising, if you're eating right, you know, all those things. But um, I uh, I was watching these guys, and they're kind of going through their dance rotations and, you know, spinning, gyration, crotch grabbing, whatever they were doing. And uh, I was thinking to myself, you know, it's just a lot cooler when you're 20, when you do kind of, the, you know, the leg kick, and they spin around, and they're singing, and, you know. But some of it, some of it just looked like, yeah, that guy's having a harder time getting off the couch finding the remote control. But i got to give them credit. They can still sell tickets. They sold that building out last night. And there was huge demand. And they're, they got 85 cities. And it's incredible to, to think about the, the volume of shows that they're going to do in, in the next. It's a six-month run. They got a Christmas CD that they're releasing. There's a documentary that they're probably putting together. They were filming everything last night. And the Backstreet Boys themselves were some of them, a couple of them, I don't I don't know all their names, which I take as kind of a badge of honor, but a couple of them I noticed because I looked them up on Twitter, were doing like meet and greets privately in the cities that they're going to. One of them appeared at a Portland... Uh, coffee shop and said, hey, you can buy a ticket. Uh, I'll meet with 50 fans. We'll have a cup of coffee. I'll sing a song. I'll sign a CD. And, you know, they're charging for that. And another one said, hey, I will, uh, I'm having I'm having a dinner the night before the concert at a restaurant. Here's what a ticket costs. And I thought to myself, like, I started doing the math on the concert. Like, they're not just making $2 million per venue times 85 minus expenses. But they're also monetizing, they're selling their CDs, they're selling their merch, they're doing the meet and greets, uh, and people are going crazy for it. So I, you know, I give them credit. There's some entrepreneurial spirit at work, and good for them. We'll talk more about it later in the show with Anna, but you guys aren't going to give me grief. Sean, you're not giving me any grief over this? No, I think you were, uh, you know, if it was Anna's decision, like I respect Anna for wanting to go to that. I think, you know, it, it sounds like it's uh, the target audience is, uh, you know, it's people like Anna, you know, females, and uh, you were just being a good husband. So I, I, I respect it, honestly. Would I go to that? No. But it sounds like you were just being a good husband, and, uh, you know, I, I respect that. All right. You know what? You should go to it because I'm going to tell you that that audience was 90 to 95% women. And there were some single women there, Sean. And not everybody, right? not everybody was in their 40s and 50s. And so I'm here to tell you that it was a lot like a Taylor Swift concert. I went to see Taylor Swift with the now college soon to be sophomore and i had the same experience i was looking around going you know what if i were a single guy this is where i would be like hanging out at a backstreet boys concert hanging out at a taylor swift concert because you got a whole bunch of people that are out for a fun evening and you know some of them are single it's it's incredible that uh just like the backstreet boys sold out sold out and then i was at a concert last week and like it was a lot of people my age there that sold out and it, it shows you that you know how many people really live here like how many people live in this area like concerts kind of show you that because like there's all of these different performers that are coming through and all of these events seem to do really well and it's just it's a completely different audience of people depending on the event i think it's a lot of fun and a lot of good people watching in the end I want to play some Punch It Out. By the way, is there a concert that you have been to that, you know, like the Backstreet Boys concert, Anna said last night, she took a picture of us, and she said, is it okay if I tweet this? And there was part of me that was like, no, I don't, you know, no, because it's there's going to be some people out there that are going to give me grief, but I didn't say that. Is there a concert that you've been to 
that you wouldn't widely announce or advertise that you attended? Well, funny you say that. Uh, I just told Sean this. I've actually never been to a concert. Does that make me really weird? No. What do you want to? Why haven't you been to one? Or it's a what weird do you explanation. Yeah, explain this. I just, yeah. I just, I've never been to one. I don't, I don't have like uh, any passion for any true artist or type of music. Like I love all type of music, but I just never had the like the passion to actually want to go see someone perform live. And so now that I have it, now again, I wear that like a badge of honor, and uh, you know, I'm just not going to do it now. You're not going to do it at all? Just out of spite He's a concert virgin. What? He's a concert virgin. Sean, you go to concerts all the time. You love live performance. I love live performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're great. No, I went to one last week. I'm going to one this week. Um, haven't been to a ton in my life, but this summer has been a, a great summer for concerts. It'll be my third summer or third concert this summer. It's it's great. Just like, you know, it's the, the just the audio level. Like, you can listen to the Backstreet Boys on Spotify, but you go there and it's just like, it's such great sound and it's just, you know, everyone is, everyone's excited and I don't know. John, were you on the floor? Did you have uh, just normal seats? Because it's a completely different experience if you're on the floor and you're kind of, I'm assuming you were, we were one on of the, the people, floor. We but you were, were sitting the, down. No, we were on the floor. <laughs> were you in the mosh this, pit? I was not in the mosh pit. I was standing very um, <laughs> still on the railing, kind of watching it. I was on my phone for a little bit because I was kind of doing some math on what it what is what do they make on a concert like this? How old are these guys? What have these guys been through? I was doing all their history, but I I was mostly looking like I wasn't embarrassed to be there, but I was mostly looking around at the crowd going, this is fantastic people watching. The women were losing their minds. They were screaming. Even one of the Backstreet Boys said, "Hey, you used to throw your bra and your panties at us." Like, what happened? And I was thinking, "No, you don't want that now. You don't want you don't want some of that now." There were, there were women who were walking around with T-shirts, and one of the T-shirts said, I was supposed to marry a Backstreet Boy. There was a woman walking around like that. And I thought, this is fantastic sociological experiment. Well, it is true. You are, you are right. There are a lot of women that love the Backstreet Boys. I remember when I was a kid, I knew all the Backstreet Boys' names, and I would flirt with girls that way. Like, I would talk to them <laughs> about Backstreet Boys, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can name all the Backstreet Boys. And I'm like, no, you can't. Well, yeah, I can I think it's an interesting experience. You, you, mentioned, I, you yeah. mentioned the money part of this, like how much money they're pocketing. It's crazy. I, I, you know, I don't know where all the revenue goes, but for example, the weekend who we were talking about a couple weekends on the or a couple weeks ago on the show, he is selling out football stadiums right now on his tour. Like he came through Denver, Mile High. He's in Seattle this week, Lumen Field, and he's selling them out. So like fifty thousand, sixty thousand people are attending this concert. Can you imagine the amount of money he's getting? Yeah, and I think that obviously that's what it's about. Like Anna was commenting, you know, and she'll join us later, but she was commenting on like, you know, look at the length of this tour. They're in a new city practically every night. They have they have multiple sets, obviously, because they, you know, they're setting up in Vancouver, BC while they're busy playing in Portland. And so, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And you know, like how much time away from their families do they have? And these guys have families now. And, and uh, but in the end, I was going, hey, if you give anybody a guarantee of 20 or 30 million dollars to go on tour for five or six months steven you're going on tour yeah i mean i i don't blame him and there's a lot of nostalgia acts out now i mean you know netflix brings out a lot of shows you know like full house put out fuller house i think a lot of people especially my age we like to complain a lot uh you know as a uh what i'm a millennial i am actually a millennial we like to complain about things and so yeah i mean i think nostalgia wise we love what we loved back in the day and we all know that it was terrible when it came out, but we still love it because that was our generation. Yes. I think that there's part of that. Like I 
I remember being embarrassed to have a Backstreet Boys song playing in my car. Like if I had my window rolled down and somebody saw me and there was a Backstreet Boys song that came on the radio, I would turn the channel. You know, I don't, I don't want anybody to hear that. I'm not listening to the Backstreet Boys. And one of them said that last night. One of them said, hey, guys, because there were some guys in the, in the crowd, like 5% of the audience. I looked around. I saw like four other guys in the whole Moda Center. And so they, one of them said, hey, guys, it's, thank you for being here. It's cooler now, isn't it? And to, to be into our songs. And you're right, it's a nostalgia play. Because it's like, yeah, I remember I remember these guys. They were a big deal. And they sort of sparked several other imitation boy band acts that came after them that were, you know, interesting. But, you know, they they played the songs. The women in the crowd knew every lyric to every song. The, they the, knew it all. The problem is is they're not even it's not good music either. No, but it's I not great. I think no. we I think we all know Music's that. Music subjective. Mm. Music subjective. It's okay though. It like Isn't... I think it's passable. Like any one of the guys is not going to go out and be able to tour and sell out arenas. It's it's the you know it's the era. It was sort of that era where they started putting together you know boy bands and you know it probably started long before them. I mean you could go back and say the Temptations or whatever or Menudo. Remember Menudo on ABC on Saturday mornings or and then it was like. Backstreet Boys, and then it was in sync, and then it was, you know, there were ever, other ones. But I think the Backstreet Boys, like, their songs were catchy. They were fine. They weren't, like, you know, the greatest. There's not, it's not like the great, you're not going to hear the greatest vocals or whatever. They didn't have a band there last night. They were just playing music and singing to it. And, and I think they were lip syncing at different points, too, because it wasn't all, it, there's no way that these guys, the way they were jumping around at their age, could be singing every lyric and every song and every backup vocal. It, the crazy thing about concert tours for these guys, you mentioned 85 places that they're going to, like, and they have to bring it every single night because concerts are not cheap. So there's a lot of people at the Moda Center last night that paid top dollar to go see the Backstreet Boys. And these are human beings that are, you know, like they were probably in another place the night before, and they're probably going to another place very yeah. soon, probably Seattle, if I had to guess. And they, you, you have to have full energy. Because you can't you can't take a night off like it's you know like in the NBA, it, what's more what's more exerting just to bring a sports take into this what's more exerting playing an NBA basketball game or putting to get putting on a show because like there's a lot of NBA rest we've seen that over the past couple of years but I would argue that artists have it even worse you know just having to go full out every single night. Yeah, I think it's that I I thought about that last night they were playing in Moda Center and I thought about like the lifestyle of a rock star who's on tour or a pop star on tour versus an NBA player, I think there are some parallels that you could draw in that world. All right, I want to play some Punch It audio coming up. John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, is going to be joining us as well, bottom of the hour. Anna will join us in the 5 o'clock hour to talk about the Backstreet Experience. If you're a fan of Anna, you're going to want to be here in the 5 o'clock hour. I want you to leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I've been to all kinds of concerts, even concerts of bands that I didn't really, like, at face value care for. I saw Midnight Oil once upon a time. I, You know, Matt Kearney, the... The uh, uh, the uh, guy who plays the organ coming home song or whatever that is, he you know I'm not a like a diehard fan of his music, but when I, anytime there's a live performance, I find that as 
thrilling as a sporting event. Like, just to see somebody who's that talented doing what they love to do in front of an audience. Man, it's a thrill. There's energy. There's electricity out there. I'm a, Steven, we got to get you to concert, man. Like, are you dug in? On this point, or would you go if we sent you to a concert? I mean, I would go. I, I wouldn't feel good about it. That's, you know, that's the type of person I am. You know, when I get something in my head, I get very strong-willed about it. Just like a show. Like, if someone's really going to hype up a show uh, and I haven't seen it yet, I don't want to watch it because I'm just going to hate it automatically. But, uh, no, I mean, if it's a thing, yeah, I'll go. Here's the thing. If you have to drag me there. <laughs> Here's the thing. I I'm a little worried about you. I want you, like, and not in a weird way. I just, I think it would be good for you to just go to any concert. I don't even think it has to be, like, it doesn't have to be, like, some headliner act, just a live performance. Like, have you never seen, like, you've you've walked into, like, a place that has live music going on, right? Like, yeah. The, yes. Yeah, so the closest thing I would say is uh, I've been to, the le- like, the Legends show in Vegas, where they have the impersonators, you know, dress up as Legends, and they impersonate them. That's the closest I've done because they have some musical acts. Okay. So I think you should go to a concert. I think we need to get Steven to a concert. I don't know. Sean, where where should we send him? Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Um, I'll have to look at who's coming to Portland. He's wearing a weekend yeah. shirt right now. Um, See? So maybe we send him up to Seattle. Might be Seattle. A little, that might be a little too crazy for me. Yeah. You know, like, Steven, <laughs> I'll, I'll run the board on Thursday. The weekend's up at Lumen Field on Thursday. Let's send you up. Let's, you know, let's pitch in for a ticket and get you up to that football field to watch the weekend on Thursday. How's that Here's, sound? I, I don't know if that venue, is that venue the right place? Do you need a well, smaller venue? Yeah, I feel like that's too big of a jump. Like, I'm but, all for, like, just jumping in the pool and getting it over with, but I don't know, man. That, that <laughs> all right, yeah, let's look at, I'm going to look at Wonder Ballroom or some smaller venues, and uh, we'll get you on your way. I think Moda Center would be fine for him. Although... It's kind of pain in the butt to get into Moda Center last night. There was was it? Line, the line went all the way to the street, man. They were having a hard oh time. I don't know what is going on. I'm a little worried about the sporting season coming up at Moda Center because if they can't get people in the building, there were some people waiting in line for a long time. We got there really early, and I looked at the lines, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, what are they struggling with? Um, all right, let's play some Punch It Audio. John Wilner joining us uh, coming up in a few minutes. <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, Washington has named its starting quarterback. It's going to be Michael Penix Jr., the transfer from Indiana. He talked about the advantage he had. He knew the offense. It's a pretty big advantage. Punch yeah, um, I feel like it, it was real good, you know, just coming in and knowing some of the stuff. But um, Sam and Demo, they picked up on a lot of things um, very quickly, you know. So uh, they were always detailed guys, guys in the quarterback room, always putting in the extra work as well, you know. So, you know, um, I feel like I had some of, like, slight advantage of, you know, just knowing some of the playbook, but, you know, those guys, they, they dialed into it real fast, and, you know, they, they made a lot of great things happen out here on the field. Michael Penix Jr. will be the guy. He struggled with injury, but he knows Kalen DeBoer's offense, and I think that was the great advantage for Penix. Washington is sneaky. I've said this all along. They don't play Utah. They don't play USC in the regular season. I could see them winning seven or eight games. Maybe it's just me but they are a little 
bit of a sleeper pick. John, I got Dan a Lanning at Oregon. Uh, yeah. I got a question for you about Michael Go Penix ahead. and Washington real quick. Don't you think with Michael Penix as the starting quarterback, the Washington ceiling is way higher than it would be with the other two? Yes. I think it gives them the better chance to be an eight-win-plus team. But I also think he, you know, injuries have been his problem. If he doesn't stay healthy, they know they're going to need those other guys, and I think it's why they were really, really delicate in naming him the starter it, because I think they know they're going to need a backup. His track record with injury, not great. But, yes, his experience, and frankly, you're not going to take a guy who's transferred in and knows the coaching staff, and you're not going to say, hey, thanks for transferring, but you're sitting on the bench now. I think those conversations probably, the serious part of those conversations happened months and months ago. Dan Landing at Oregon talking about his quarterback play. They scrimmaged on Saturday. Here's what Landing said after the scrimmage. Uh, we had four picks today. Uh, four picks today. We had so- several balls on the ground. Um, you know, in general, just ball in jeopardy situations that we got to do a better job of. Is that just the defense being opportunistic and making plays or sloppy on the offense? It's a combination of both. You know, it's a combination of both. Not catching it clean turns into a tip ball, turns into an interception, some poor decision making, um, some, you know, taking advantage of an opportune moment and, and doing a good job attacking the ball. So I think it's a combination. We got to do a better job taking care of it. For sure. When those, when those are all factors that obviously go into making a decision on quarterback and who the starter is going to be, how does this impact the timeline? Do you, do you feel like you're a couple of days away from making that decision, or does this change that decision? I don't think I'm telling you guys. Dan Lanning not going to share who's starting at quarterback. Don't we all know it's Bo Nix? It's Bo Nix, right? He's the guy at Auburn that started a whole bunch of games in the SEC. You're not going to Georgia, and you are going to Atlanta to play Georgia and putting a unproven Ty Thompson on the field for the first time. I talked to Dan Lanning one-on-one on Sunday. I was driving from Central Oregon back to home here in the Portland metropolitan area with the family, and Lanning called me. Cell phone reception was spotty, but I happened to catch him at a time when I could have a good five-minute conversation with him. He downplayed the expectations for the season, and understandably so. I just asked him, how are you feeling about it? How are you feeling about the season? And Dan Lanning said, look, my guys want to hit other people. I want to see them hit other people. But he said, I'm always going to want another week of practice. I think he's a little anxious about the season, and understandably so. It's a first-time head coach. He's going into Georgia, into the Lions Den against the defending national champion. I think think Dan Lanning is going to use every minute of the next – what is it, 10 to 12 days? Whatever, wherever they are away from this starter, a week from Saturday. He's going to lo- use every minute trying to get his team ready. But I think it's Bo Nix in the end. Greg McElroy talking about why Dan Lanning isn't revealing his hand. It's Punch not it. that dissimilar to what we've heard from other guys that are kind of from that Nick Saban tree. I mean, they, they want to keep things close to the vest. He doesn't feel, especially probably as a defensive guy, he probably doesn't feel like there's any benefit to making the starting quarterback known. If you're an offensive guy or an offensive-minded head coach, maybe you played quarterback at some point or another, you understand the positives that come with announcing who your starting quarterback's going to be, especially if there's a wide gap between the number one and the number two. But as a defensive guy, which Dan Lanning, of course, is, I have a feeling he kind of looks at it and says, man, I... I know that if I'm a defensive coordinator and I know what the skill set is of the starting quarterback that we're playing against, I can better put together a defensive plan that could neutralize what advantages that quarterback may have. 
So that's the difference between being a defensive-minded head coach and an offensive-minded head coach. The offensive-minded head coach, hey, we want our quarterback to be the voice of our offense. We want to have a united front centering around that quarterback. Whereas the defensive guy is like, no, I'm not telling you anything because if I know his skill set, I can take away what he does well. I also think that, look, I think you're overcomplicating it, Greg McElroy. I think there's a part of this that Dan Landing simply may tell his team, here's who the starter is. But I don't want Georgia to know that. And why would you tell Georgia? Even though everybody kind of knows it's going to be Bo Nix, you don't have to say it. And I also think there's a chance that if Bo Nix starts the season, that he doesn't necessarily finish the season. I can tell you this. I'm going to be awfully interested in what happens on September 3rd as Georgia and Oregon suit up and play. Fernando Tatis Jr. has apologized. Gave a full apology. I'm going to play part of it. Fernando, what happened? I this day. Yes, by saying I'm truly sorry. I am. Uh, I'm really sorry. Um, I have let so many people down. I have lost so much love. All right, all right, all right, I get it. I can barely hear the guy, but here's the thing. He should have came out in the beginning and owned it. People would forgive you. They would understand all this crap about ringworm medication, haircut gone awry. It doesn't fly today. It just doesn't. We've been through Lance Armstrong. Okay, Fernando, just own it. You screwed up. Do better. John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, coming up next. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. John Wilmer, Bay Area News Group superstar, my co-host on the Canzano and Wilner podcast. If you're not already subscribed to the Canzano and Wilner podcast, uh, we are doing a podcast that uh, focuses a lot on the Pac-12 conference, dives a little deeper into the conversations we've had over the years on this radio show. You can grab that on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get a podcast. Stream it wherever you can find it. Wilner joining us now from the Bay Area. How are you, man? I'm good, thanks. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I had Brett McMurphy on the show, I'm not going to lie, in hour one. And I, you know, I listen to him kind of gloom and doom. You know, the conferences, you know, uh, the Big Ten, Oregon, all the conversations. But I'm pumping the brakes on that. I want to know where you sit on Oregon to the Big Ten and the disintegration of the Pac-12, doomsday. You know, I, I think that those schools, Oregon, Washington, maybe the Bay Area schools, could very well end up in the Big Ten, but I just don't think that that's going to happen in the short term. I think that's m- multiple years away, if not many, many years away. Uh, some of it depends on Notre Dame. Some of it depends on, you know, whether the Big Ten's TV partners are going to be willing to shell out whatever money needs to be shelled out. So, you know, I, I think that the Pac-12 is going to end up, my guess, the most likely scenario is it's going to end up staying together uh, and signing some kind of short, shorter-term contract that gives some flexibility 
to to some of the schools. Uh, I just don't know like, where's Oregon and Washington going to go, right? That's the thing. You got to have some place to go, and I don't think they're the door to the Big Ten is open right now. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think we're saying a lot of the same stuff, Wilner. And for people who don't know, it's not like you and I are talking about this off air. You are talking to your sources. I'm talking to my sources. I think we talk to a lot of different people within the conference. I don't I don't find a ton of overlap. And what I keep coming back to is of course there's back channeling going on, but you know, that's due diligence. You of course you would you would, you know, explore alternate plans in the event of A, B, C happening. But I think in the short term, I agree with you. ESPN, I think, is going to come in as the primary partner for the Pac-12. And I think Oregon will be in the Pac-12 in the next couple of few years. I mean, they don't have a choice. Unless the Big Ten says, we'll take you now, or we're going to take you in six or 12 months, what choice do they have? Going to the Big 12 doesn't solve any of your problems. just creates more because you're not going to sign a long-term deal. If you're working, they're not signing a long-term deal with the Big 12 either. So... You stay in the Pac-12 uh, until the the Big Ten calls. And again, I don't. I, there are no indications to me that the Big Ten is going to come calling in the next year or two. I think that they are done expanding for now. I can't believe they would add teams, you know, before USC and UCLA start playing, and before Notre Dame has to renegotiate its contract, right? Because a lot of this starts with Notre Dame, and probably in the summer of 2024. They're going to have to decide, are they going to stand independent for their next contract, or are they going to join a conference? So, to me, everything is kind of on pause until if and when Notre Dame makes a decision. John Wilner with us, Bay Area News Group. Give me an idea. You know, this, this conference season, a week from Saturday, we'll get Utah at Florida. We'll get Oregon at Georgia. How ready is the Pac-12 this season to factor nationally? Better than it was last season, and I think a couple reasons. One is I think the quarterback play, generally speaking, is going to be better. But I also think, you know, last September, the whole Pac-12 was coming off that COVID stuff where there were fewer games, fewer practices, fewer off-season workouts than the other conferences because the Pac-12 took a more conservative approach. So, every, you know, last September they weren't as ready to play as the opponents. And I think now the the field has evened out because it's been a normal past 12 months for the Pac-12. And so they should be better equipped to start fast and to hold their own in a lot of these games. Whereas last year, you could just tell, man, these teams are not ready to play. And I think a lot of that was because they, they hadn't played. What kind of indicators are you looking for that this will be a better non-conference season for the Pac-12? I mean, a lot of it is how does Oregon do against Georgia and how does um, Utah do against Florida. But to me, it's also how are they going to do against the Mountain West schools, right? How are they going to do against the FCS? They can't have bad losses, right? You need to have a really good win or two, but you also can't have bad losses at the other end that, that offsets everything. And then you got to do well. Oregon State against Fresno and Boise, that kind of game. Arizona against San Diego State, right? I mean, Oregon's got BYU. Those games against the Mountain West schools can't be losing more than you're winning. And last year was losing. The Pac-12 was losing more than a one, and that offset Oregon's victory at Ohio State. Yeah, I think 
you know, I, I'm kind of looking to week three. Oregon BYU is a big one because I'm not sure hey. we're going to. I don't. I don't know if we're going to get in week one. Hey, how how is the Pac-12's trajectory? Like, if Utah wins at Florida, it could be an outlier. What other games on, in your mind are key for the Pac-12 to have a good non-conference? Uh, well, I mean, I think Oregon BYU is a big one. Uh, there's no uh, totally agree there. USC Fresno. Um, you know, Arizona State, Oklahoma State, Sun Devils going to go hold their own. Arizona, San Diego State, I think is a big one. Um, I mean, Oregon State's actually got two. You know, you can't lose both at Boise and Fresno. So there's a there's a bunch of them trickled in there. You know, Cal, Notre Dame is week three. I don't know. That one is, you know, who's going to give Cal much of a chance there? It probably would help if, if help the Pac-12 if Colorado beat TCU in the opener and then beat Air Force, right? I mean, last year Colorado was losing all those games early, uh, shut out by Minnesota. So, I mean, it's hard to pick one, um, but certainly, you know, Oregon, BYU, and USC, Fresno State would be. Well, how about Washington, Michigan State at Washington? Yeah, I mean that's big, but but also Washington's not even ranked, right? So I kind of look at it like you got to have your the teams that have expectations need to need to win the big games. I think if Washington loses, that's kind of like Cal losing the game, even though it's in Seattle. It's like, well, are they really expected to win that game? Are they really expected to have a good season? You got to the teams that are supposed to be good need to be good. John Wilner with us, Bay Area News Group. Michael Penix Jr. is going to be the starter at Washington. Dan Lanning refusing to this point to name a starter. Uh, as you look at the quarterbacks in the Pac-12, you know who this season is capable of putting a team on their back, and why won't Lanning name a starter? Well, I mean, I think he wants to push Bo Nix as long as he can, create a sense of urgency, and maybe you know keep Ty Thompson from entering the transfer portal. 12 minutes after Bo Nix gets named the starter. I mean, you know, watch these days with the backup quarterbacks leaving school. Um, who can carry a team? I mean, I guess Caleb Williams can. Um, I think Tanner McKee at Stanford is probably the best pure passer in the conference. Uh, Cam Rising, obviously, Utah is really good. Dorian Thompson Robinson, UCLA. To me, those are the, the top tier, but. We don't know because there's so many transfers. Why is it seven teams are going to have transfers uh, starting quarterback? So there's a lot of unknowns. And, you know, a lot of those guys either coming off shaky years or coming off injuries. But that is, to me, that's a key. Quarterback play was not good last year, not good at all. And I think that was affected. You know, the COVID thing probably had an impact on timing in the passing game, but they got to, those quarterbacks have got to play well, and they got to play well early for the Pac-12. Wilner, help me out here. Am I being a negative Nancy by saying, Caleb Williams, I'm not ready to buy that as he is the star in this league and is going to carry USC. And I could, I, I, I foresee some hiccups for Caleb Williams and USC. Am I just being negative here? No, I think that's fair because he didn't, play the entire season the last year for Oklahoma. And, you know, you do have to wonder about SC's offensive line play and ability to run the ball consistently. So I, I could see that, you know, 
I could see it ended up both ways, right? He's a little, he's a, doesn't quite play to expectations, uh, struggles a little bit, but you could also map out a scenario pretty easily in which, you know, he's a star and he makes it to New York City for the Heisman ceremony, and SC has a really good season. But I, I mean, I don't think your view is is unfounded at all. Wilner, I am looking at the coaches in this conference. Difference maker coaches. You just saw Nick Saban get a big contract extension, ninety plus million dollars. He's gonna, you know, have a couple hundred million dollars. People are saying he's underpaid for what he does. Is there a coach in this conference? Because I think, you know, we've seen some coaches leave. Is there a coach in this conference who's a difference maker in your mind, or where does that line of coaches who are difference makers begin and end for you? Oh man, great question. I mean, it, you can argue that Lincoln Riley is a difference maker because of what he has done for USC in the last, what is it, nine months? I mean, you think about where SC was like at the end of last season at, with no coach and a 4-8 and eight record and who knows what was going to happen to that program. And now look at where they are ending and entering the season with a Heisman candidate, ranked, rebuilt their, their, uh, their depth chart through the transfer portal, more excitement and buzz about SC than there's been in a long time. And, and they haven't played a game. That's all because of Lincoln Riley. So he has certainly made a difference there to this point. But we'll see. I mean, other than Kyle Whittingham, I don't know. I think that's we're going to find out a lot this year because you got some coaches who are, you know, entering the midpoints of their careers and they probably need to win. And then you got a lot of new guys. There's four new coaches. So it, it'll be real interesting. But certainly – Riley's what he has done for USC the last eight, eight months has, has been a big difference. I, I keep thinking about Dan Lanning, first time, first year head coach. Uh, I I expect that there there are going to be some speed bumps that he may lose a game or two that he should win. We saw it with Mario Cristobal. We saw it with Chip Kelly early on. There there were some game decisions that were made where you went, gosh, you know, would a more experienced coach have done that? What do you make of first-time, first-year head coaches in a Power Five conference setting? It's hard, uh, you know, off the top of my head, it's hard to, you know, pinpoint one or, or two who have really excelled ex- with the exception of the guys that were promoted from within, right? Chip Kelly, obviously, did great his first year at Oregon once he was replaced Bilotti. David Shaw taking over for Harbaugh. Whittingham, even though they weren't in the Pac-12, Pac Whittingham taking over for Urban Meyer. But, you know, those are examples of guys, or Mark Helfrich did well, right? Those are examples of guys that are in the program and getting promoted. You know, when you're talking about a first-time head coach at a new place, I don't know that there's very many examples of guys winning big early. Uh, and then you couple that with the fact that, you know, his, his coordinators are pretty clean, right? I mean, they're young. Uh, they've got some play-calling experience, but, you know, they're, they're not like grizzled veterans. So it will be interesting to see how the Oregon staff performs early, but also how do they adjust once you, once you get into October and you're playing conference games and the opponents know you and you've got a, they've got a ton of film on, on you and they know your tendencies – what are your counter moves when you get to October? And I'll be real interested to see how Oregon adjusts to the adjustments. Wilner, George Kiafkoff, the Pac-12 commissioner, has got a tough job. 
He's going to watch HBO Real Sports tonight. He's going to hear Kevin Warren talk to Bryant Gumble, talk about expanding to 20 teams, not shooting that down, leaving that door open. He's got the Big 12 circling, waiting for the Four Corners universities if they should choose to run for the hills. Uh, he's got Oregon back-channeling and probably some others back-channeling. Uh, how tough is his job right now, and what does he need to do here between now and about the second week of September? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like meatball surgery. He's trying to get this thing, uh, you know, solidified, right, and stable. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take. It could be what, a couple more weeks, the other side of Labor Day, but it could also take into October, right? If if they end up going to the open market and getting bids from a bunch of folks and considering expansion, it could take a while. But he has got to be creative. I think he's got to be aggressive. And creative, and he's got to. He has to be thinking of ideas to generate revenue that nobody else has thought of, right? That you haven't thought of, that I haven't thought of, that, that fans aren't talking about. When we hear about it, it, goes, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know what those things could be, but he's he's got to be creative and he's got to be aggressive out there trying to cobble together a really good deal. It's going to satisfy the schools who want to go to the Big Ten eventually in the schools that want some kind of stability uh, in, the, in this conference, all right? And that's a tough needle to thread. John Wilner with us, Bay Area News Group. Uh, you can catch him on the Kanzano and Wilner podcast as well. What kind of feedback are you getting on the podcast, man? Uh, good, good feedback, real good. Uh, my father, my 81-year-old father is asking me, when's the next podcast going to drop? So <laughs> I know that we're all... We're doing okay if he's asking about that kind of stuff. I didn't even know he knew what that meant. I love that. Listen, uh, I'm excited about games starting. I'm eager to see this conference pull together. I'm also well aware that you know a lot of people are listening to us or reading you or reading me because they want to know what's going to happen with the conference. So let's lay this out, if we can, in just a couple minutes. I, I, I feel like what we're going to have happen is we're going to see the Pac-12 partner with ESPN. I think that there could be some provisions in the contract that allow for early exits if the Big Ten and the rest of college football just tilts sideways again. And it, But I feel like in the next two, three, four years, this may settle down some into the Pac-12 continuing to fight for relevancy and explore expansion. And, you know, the Big Ten still eyeing over going, is there anything over there that we like? but I feel like we're going to see a little status quo. Are you with that, or do you see something different? I think the most likely scenario is that the Pac-12 continues to exist, you know, for the rest of this decade. Um, I, I do think that there's a real good chance it expands, you know, and I don't know who San Diego State maybe makes the most sense. It's going to be 11 teams, 12 teams. 14, 16, I just feel like my gut tells me that the most valuable thing the Pac-12 has going for it is that it can play at 7.30 Pacific time when, you know, prime time for the West Coast. That's a valuable TV window, and the Pac-12 could do it on Friday and Saturday nights for 13 weeks. It could say to ESPN or whoever, we've got 26 broadcast windows, prime time, there's no competition. But in order to do that, you need game. You need teams, so you got enough games so you can fill all those spots. 
So I, I kind of feel like because of the need for inventory, they're going to add a team, two teams, maybe even four teams. Uh, that, that's kind of my gut. I don't, there's no palpable reason for it. You know, I haven't heard for sure they're going to expand. But if that plays into their strength, it getting more games plays into their strength of being able to fill those night windows, which is their most valuable property. John Wilner, Bay Area News Group. Follow him at Wilner Hotline on Twitter. Wilner, I appreciate you, my friend. Thanks very much, Wilner. There he is, John Wilner. Stephen, takeaways from that conversation. Quick takeaways. What did you learn there? Uh, what, what maybe stuck out to you? Yeah, the quick takeaway for me is everything I read nationally, it seems as if they're saying the Pac-12 is over and it's doomsday. But what John Wilner said at the end of the decade, the Pac-10 or Pac-10, Pac-12 will still be here. That it just—it's so weird to see the national news compared to what you and Wilner have been reporting. Is that yeah. you know the Pac-12 is doing so much to keep it together, you know, and I want to have faith that they do that because you know as a guy that's been around this area my whole life, I would love to see the Pac-12 stay it together. Uh, I'll explain why I think the national guys have a different narrative, and why I don't blame them for it. Next. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Some of the national media members are preaching gloom and doom. And I don't think they're preaching it. I think they're just reporting gloom and doom. But you got to ask yourself, who are they listening to? Who are they talking to? I think some of them are probably talking to people who have motivation, who have an agenda. Uh, they are w- experienced, good reporters. Uh, I'm talking about guys like Brett McMurphy at the Action Network. I'm talking about Dennis Dodd with CBS Sports. These guys are great reporters, fantastic reporters, and they're friends of mine. I also think they're talking to people who have a dog in the fight, so to speak. And so when they talk to sources who are with the Big Ten Conference saying, yeah, we're exploring, we're going to get to 20, we're expanding – they're not seeing the picture from twenty or 30,000 feet. Likewise, look, I'm probably talking to people who are more centered or geared toward the Pac-12 conference staying together. But I can tell you what I am hearing is very balanced. The athletic directors in the conference are not the people who are in charge of the universities jumping to another conference. They are simply in charge of running their athletic departments. But what they are telling me is in communications with their university presidents and chancellors, what they are hearing is, we are committed to this, we are in this, we are together, we are galvanized. I had one AD tell me, if Oregon leaves, I think everybody's going to run for the hills. But I think that's true. That's true of the Pac-12 conference. I think that's true of the Big 12. If they lose a tentpole university one more time, I think that you would see a disintegration of that conference. So I do think Oregon is an important player in this. I think the fact that Phil Knight is out there banging the drum trying to get the Ducks into the Big Ten Conference should should not surprise anyone. I think he was doing that from minute one, the minute UCLA and USC left the conference. I think they knew that. But, you know, I reached out immediately when USC and UCLA left the conference, and I asked a source at UCLA, in your conversations with the Big Ten, Did they talk about taking other teams? The source at UCLA told me, no, 
It doesn't pencil out. I keep hearing that over and over again from media consultants, from athletic directors, from university presidents. They're saying just the numbers don't work. Oregon would have to take a tremendous subsidy. They'd probably have to take less than they would get in the Pac-12 conference if they stayed. So I don't think in the short term they jump. And I think it explains why you're hearing gloom and doom on the outside and you're hearing Wilder and I talk about, hey, this conference is going to stay together. I think they stay together in the short term. The next five or ten years, I think you could see Oregon in the Pac-12. That's where I stand. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Well, we're in the happy hour, 5 o'clock hour. Anna will be joining us this hour to talk about the Backstreet Boys. Backstreet's back, if, you, uh, if you're not aware of it. Been talking about it some on today's show. Dive deeper later in the program. Got an apology from Fernando Tatis Jr. Got a Major League Baseball team apparently uh, on the on the uh, chopping block or for sale. We have uh, Kevin Durant. Uh, is he happy now, or is he just stuck? And so much more. All of this will be part of the Five at Five. Let's do it. The Five at Five. I mentioned this earlier, but Padres star shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr. has apologized after receiving an 80-game suspension. He's also going to have a shoulder surgery. Why not? If he can't play, get the surgery. But he apologized to his Padres teammates privately and then expressed some remorse for the suspension that will keep him off the field in the next season. He said he's sorry for his mistakes. It was a impromptu news conference in the Padres dugout today. He said, quote, I've seen how my dreams have turned into my worst nightmares. There's no one other to blame than myself. I wish Tatis Jr. had said this when the story broke. He said he had been dealing with a skin infection. He took some medication. He tested positive. He now says there's no excuse. I need to do a better job of knowing what's going in my body. I also think it's kind of a ridiculous excuse to be making for what they determined was in his system. Cholesterol, an anabolic steroid in his system. He said he accidentally took a medication. I just want an apology. Own it. Move on, man. We've been through this. Lance Armstrong told us it's not about the bike. Barry Bonds told us it was the cream, not the clear. Fernando Tatis Jr., you're playing a game that more skilled, more eloquent, more talented and heralded players and athletes have played long before you. We all know a rule breaker when we see one. You broke some rules. Just own it and do better. Number two in our five at five. Let's focus on the Anaheim Angels, Los Angeles Angels, whatever you want to call them. They apparently may be for sale. That's right. Artie Moreno is exploring a potential sale. What does it mean for the Halos? Well, it means that they could be sold. He bought the Angels from Disney for $180 million in 2003. $2,003. Well, look, the Moreno 76, he recently tried to sell a 153-acre property that is Angels Stadium 
and he wanted to develop the real estate around it, and then the Anaheim City Council voided the deal. So some of this may be Artie Moreno posturing. He may be angry at the Anaheim City Council. He may be, uh, you know, just frustrated. Or maybe he's upset about how his team is doing this season on the field. If you don't know, if you're not following baseball, the LA Angels are 25 and a half games back of the Astros in the American League West Division. So if you are an Angels fan, you know you've got a cloudy future. You know you got a star player in Shohei Otani. But if you put this team up for sale right now, it creates a whole bunch of uncertainty. Will a new owner bring them in? Will they pump up the salary? Will they move the team? Will they keep the team in L.A.? I, I have to think the Angels. I, I tweeted, hey, move the team to Portland. We're ready. But I have to think the Angels will remain in Southern California where they're worth a little bit more. But I think it's a really interesting story as we watch it, uh, we watch it develop. Tom Brady in the news like he always is. Raiders reporters who cover that team asking Derek Carr, hey, uh, you know, are you uh, are you upset about the stories about your future? Apparently, uh, USC President Dana White over the weekend said that he brokered a deal for Tom Brady to come to the Raiders in 2020. Dave, Derek Carr said, quote, it is what it is, end quote. I think Dana White, who, by the way, was uh, with Rob Gronkowski on ESPN over the weekend for UFC 278, put this story together about Brady looking for houses and it was almost a done deal and John Gruden bro broke the deal up and kind of feels to me like Tom Brady was negotiating with about 20 NFL teams at the time if this is true could just be Dana White being Dana White but in the end Derek Carr having to answer the questions not sure if this is great for the Raiders at all number four in the five at five Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets, they met, and they've agreed to move forward together. Remember, Kevin Durant uh, issued a ultimatum with the Nets owner, asking for a trade on June 30th, and then reiterating that desire in a meeting earlier this month in London with Joe Tsai. Durant wanted Tsai to choose between him and the general manager and coach, Sean Marks, Steve Nash. Well, Nash and Marks are retaining their jobs, and Durant is remaining in Brooklyn. Four years, $198 million. The Nets have spent the better part of the offseason dealing with this. Feels to me like, for now, Kevin Durant is a Brooklyn Net. I don't know if this remains, but I do think it helps the Nets trade him to appear as though he is on board and staying part of the Nets. Finally, let's talk about San Diego. How about the San Diego Wave? They're going to break a NWSL single game attendance record. The Wave has sold in excess of 27,000 tickets for the September 17th match that will break a National Women's Soccer League attendance record for a standalone game. Wave forward Alex Morgan, former Thorns player, says it's a testament to women's soccer. Look no further than Portland and the Thorns, 
to know that, hey, soccer is alive and well in certain cities. But San Diego now appears to be one of them. That's our 5 at 5. Sean, Stephen, what jumped out at you in the 5 at 5? What do you want to talk about? Well, I'm very thankful that uh, hopefully the Kevin Durant rumors go away now. And uh, <laughs> we can start focusing just on, like, teams and basketball and maybe for the rest of the free agent signings now they can get done. I, I was I mean, I love I love basketball, obviously, but the off season just kind of grinds my gears a little bit and just gets yeah. on my nerves because it's it's more about off the court than on the court, and I'm an on the court guy. So it, to get to get that news over with, hopefully that Durant stays in Brooklyn is great. It, to me. It's getting too much with the NBA. Like I think there was a couple off seasons ago where they kind of realized like, wow, like we're really doing well with generating news, generating interest in the off season. Like we're really becoming the kings. Like this is becoming a 12 month thing. And I think they, they this summer it feels like they went a little overboard with it. Just the amount of content that was grasped from that Kevin Durant story and all ended up being nothing. Uh, it was just a lot of nothing the entire two months. Yeah, I think the Kevin Durant story sort of underscores what you're talking about, right? He is a guy who signs an extension in the offseason. That's news. Kevin Durant's news. And then promptly demands... Uh, that his general manager and his coach uh, be forced out so that he can be happy in Brooklyn. That, like, that's a conversation that should have happened before he signed the extension, but that's not how it works in the NBA. Do you blame the NBA for that news cycle, or is, is it the players? Oh, I, I, think, I, I think it's the players because they, they want to stay in the news, right? The NFL has really figured out how to be a year-round business, and everyone talked about the NFL all the time. I think the NBA wants to have that. And they think this is the only way to do it is by having drama and, you know, this type of conversation rather than actual basketball talk. Everywhere the NFL, you know, they focus on practices and training camp and they have people covering it and they watch it and people will tune in and, you know, 3 million people are watching preseason games. I think the NBA strives for that, but they can't get it. And the best they can do is just having all this drama going on. It's it's Shams, you know, it's Shams tweeting out like, oh, the Grizzlies made the phone call two months ago or like just in a random July morning. It's ESPN talking like breaking some story. Oh, the Celtics offered Jalen Brown. Like, I don't I don't know whose fault that is, but it feels like, you know, the media just like whenever it gets bored, like ESPN, it just kind of like whenever it's a slow news day, they just leak some random NBA news to get us talking. Yeah, it feels like the NFL, Major League Baseball, and others. Uh, college football, how about college football this offseason? It's all we talked about was sort of the formation of these conferences. I found it really annoying, uh, and and I'm eager to have games go on. Guys, do you think it will cloud the Pac-12 season, What all this Big Ten stuff, or do you think it will get put to rest when the Pac-12 comes to a media rights agreement with their partners, likely ESPN and maybe a streamer? I think it'll be put to rest once the games start. Once mm-hmm. the games start, I think we're going to forget about it. That's, that's what we kind of do as a, as a culture is we forget about things that happen. I mean, we were talking about Sean Watson all the time. We haven't talked about it for a few days now because the suspension has been done and it's going to be go through. So I think this whole talk that it's still so unknown, once these games start, that's when we're going to start kind of forgetting about that and just focus a little bit more on what's actually happening on the field uh, and right in front of our eyes. Agree. There's just like in two weeks time, there's going to be so much in the world of sports going on. Not only college football, the NFL is going to be going on soon enough. The NBA soon enough, the World Cup. And I feel like, you know, this summer, it's obviously every summer. There's not a lot of sports news. Obviously, the conference realignment stuff's a big deal, but I think there's going to be a lot of distractions coming up. I am so tired of this conference talk. I cover it. 
I'm all over it. I'm, you know, I'm talking with sources every day about it because it's important. But I want the games to start. And I want the focus to be back on football and great stories. Now, I got one cooking for tomorrow, guys. I want to give you a little bit of insight on. Um, if you are a Pac-12 fan, you're going to want to be subscribed to me and reading tomorrow. And, you know, grab a free subscription, grab a paid subscription, whatever works for you at johnkidsauto.com. But tomorrow morning, I've got a story posting that will be a lot of fun. It'll be a good read. I'm having a lot of fun writing it and reporting it. And uh, I just think, you know, I, I noticed that Dan Lanning's dad signed up for a subscription today. Dan Lanning's dad is going to be very pleased with the story that I write tomorrow because I took a deep, deep, deep dive on Oregon and Dan Lanning, and that's coming out early tomorrow morning. It'll be, I think, well-received, and I'm super into writing about the personalities of the conference. And so even though I'm covering all this other stuff, I'm going to bounce around the conference. I'll write about Kyle Whittingham and the Utes. I'll write about what's going on at Colorado and Carl Durrell and Washington and Washington State, of course. And Mario Cristobal said to me, you know, hey, you want to come out to Miami? I'll give you the access. You want to come out? You want to write about what's going on at Miami? I'll give you the access. Mike Leach said he want to do it at, at you know, uh, at Mississippi State. Come out and or come to Key West. Go on a bike ride with me. I'm going to do that stuff. I'm going to go out because I'm interested in those stories, and I think you are too. Let's get the games going. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna will be coming up bottom of the hour. We got to get to the bottom of this Backstreet Boys concert that I uh, attended with her last night. I'm not going to talk a lot about it. On today's show, I, I vowed to not do that, and yet I did. I've talked about it pretty much uh, at least once every hour. We'll deal with it in its entirety coming up here in a few minutes. Uh, before I get to that, can we talk about the Trailblazers' decision to unwind their broadcast fiasco? I know you guys uh, dealt with this a little bit while I was out, but the Trailblazers made a tone-deaf decision uh, and said they were planning to not travel their broadcast team this season. Their television broadcasters, their radio broadcasters, were going to sit it out and stay home. I think it was a terrible decision. I think it was a bad look. It's obviously rooted in cost-cutting, obviously rooted in uh, this organization not being in touch with its fan base. And I continue to have a problem with it, even after the organization has unwound it. Dwayne Haskins, the team president of the Blazers, saying that you know it, they have reversed course and they are now going to bring those broadcasters on the road. Um, I did a little bit of research, a little bit of poking around. Um, I I do believe that this was rooted in cost cutting. I I and I also think it's just plain dumb. It's just bad business. It is a organization who uh you know often does things as it bumbles along over the years uh often does things to alienate its fan base and i have worried at different points in time whether or not that would ultimately cost the blazers in a way that is near and dear and i think that i think it will i think some of their decisions on their television rights their broadcast teams the way they flushed out Mike Barrett and Mike Rice as a broadcast team, 
Ryan Wheeler pushed to the side. Bill Shonley pushed to the side years ago. I think over the years, the Blazers have made a whole bunch of boneheaded decisions that demonstrate that they're not really in touch with who they should be and who they are as an organization. Now, uh, I am told that the cost-cutting is real. This Leaving the broadcasters at home during road games decisions was just part of the problem. In the last month, the Blazers have taken a level of management in their sales organization and eliminated it. Three director-level staff members who have 42 years of combined experience between them were let go. They are going to use lesser experienced managers to supervise their sales staff moving forward. Now, this is uh, not new. Anybody who's been around corporations knows that companies try to get younger and cheaper as a cost-cutting measure. You do this by eliminating roles where leaders are at the top of the salary range, right? You take the responsibilities, you give them to younger managers with less experience who haven't been with the company long enough, and, you know, you look at Nike, look at Adidas. They do this. This is what companies do. But the Trailblazers are doing this, and especially an organization like the Blazers, it's got some prestige to it. You get staff members who are longtime staff members who are not eager to retire, right? So they either have to buy these people out, or they have to retire them, or they have to just lay them off and let them go. And I think part of what is happening with the Trailblazers is I think they're trying to get their balance sheet in order in front of a potential sale. I think that's real. I think that's what they're doing. I don't think this was about you know trying to poke uh, Blazer fans in the eye or upset Blazer fans. Like I think it would just be bad business if that's what they were doing or that's what they were after. I think the real reason that the Trailblazers have made this decision or made this decision and then reversed it was – they were trying to save a few bucks. Now, how much could you save? I get it. Not very much relative to their salary. Not, not relative to the 40 or $50 million that they're going to play da- pay Damian Lillard. The payroll, the guys on the payroll that aren't really contributing to the team. Um, you're talking about per diems for your broadcast crew. You're talking about some hotel rooms for your broadcast crew. And you're talking about five-star hotels that they stay in for your broadcast crew. So I think... You know, you're talking about a few hundred thousand dollars over the course of the season. It's not chump change, but for a pro sports organization to not want to travel with their broadcast team, it just shows you how out of touch Jody Allen and Burt Cold are, and they're calling the shots from Seattle. Now, the Blazers have since come out yesterday, and they've said, hey, we are uh, unwinding this decision. We have decided that we are going to... uh, we are going to travel these broadcast teams. Uh, we are, uh, you know, essentially going to, uh, you know, unwind and reverse course on our decision. And that's great that they're doing that. But I'm not willing to celebrate this because, A, this was something they should have done in the first place. You don't get credit for putting out a fire if you started the fire. You don't get to be the hero. You don't get to come in and go, hey, guess what? We're going to travel our broadcast crew and have everybody applaud you because you're the bonehead organization that in the first place decided to start the fire and cause the problem. You don't get credit. You don't get 
a pat on the back from me for unwinding the problem that you created. So that's first. Second thing is, I don't think they're done. I think the cost cutting is going to continue. I think you're going to see it at the box office. I think I saw it last night when I was at the Backstreet Boys concert. I, they were having a hard time getting people into the building. I was looking around going, this isn't that different than an NBA game. And over the years, they were able to get people in and out. This isn't pandemic related. It's not new. Like, it isn't like they're saying, hey, you have to take everybody's temperature at the door. It was normal bag check, metal detector, get people in for the concert stuff. But what I noted was several of the entrances to Moda Center were not open last night. It's a staffing issue. They are either shorthanded or they are choosing to not employ people and say, look, we're going we're gonna to cut some costs. We're going to have people wait in line a little bit more, and we're going to have a harder time getting people into the arena. But, hey, over the course of the season, we're going to save some money. I think this is the kind of crap we're going to see all year long from an organization that cannot get out of its own way. Uh, if you're a Blazer fan, I feel for you. Because this organization deserves to be in the hands of somebody who will love it, who will care for it, who will treat it like, you know, this is the most important thing in their portfolio. And for a long time, the Blazers have not felt that way, whether it was with Paul Allen or the estate of Paul Allen or Jody Allen or Burt Cold. I have just felt for a while that Trail Blazers Inc. has been adrift. Guys, when you heard yesterday that the Blazers were traveling the broadcasters, what was your reaction to that? I mean, I was happy they made the right decision, but it's like you said, they put out their own fire that they started. And it, it was just such a minor league move to keep the broadcasters home because you have great broadcasters. The TV and the radio all have really good broadcasters, and they would have done a great job had they stayed at home and doing the game. And you may not have noticed, but you're just making it so much harder. And I made the comparison of we've all had jobs where that where our boss – just makes life harder. It makes our job harder. And that's what the Blazers were doing. They were just making it so much harder for their really good employees to do a really good job. And to me, that's just such a minor league move that the Blazers did. And it's just, it's sad. Like, it makes me have no faith in the organization ever. Like, why would I ever change my mind on that? So, I, again, I was happy they re, they re, uh, rethought about it and they let the broadcasters go because that's the right decision. But it should have been the original decision. Amen to that was the original decision was wrong. They unwound it. Great, they unwound it. But, man, what a negative PR hit they just took over something that really didn't matter. That's the thing that gets me. It's like, you know, good businesses, I don't care if you're a restaurant or you're a food cart or you're a radio show or, I don't, you know, you're, you're a taxi driver or Uber driver. Like, there are just little things that you don't do to alienate customers um there are little things that you don't do to alienate your fan base um I, I think in the end if you are a blazer fan i feel for you uh i feel for you because i think it's going to manifest itself in a number of ways over the course of the season sean what was your reaction uh, yeah, a couple of things. I think it was the perfect analogy that you made. Like if I start a fire in my kitchen and then, you know, suddenly, uh, my parents come to help me out, but I'm the one that ends up, you know, like putting out that fire. I, no one's going to be celebrating me. We're, we're going to be like, why'd you start that fire? Um, I, I also think last week, you know, just with the fact that this news came out and then, you know, they came back on it. I think it shows the power of media and the, the power of, you know, radio specifically, because I know that last week, 
Peter, Stephen, and you know our station here, we were really pounding the drum about why this was a bad move. I know other radio stations were doing that as well, and I think that got fans, you know, that like I think people understood why this was a bad move, and that got fans uh, pretty riled up. And I think that's why the power of the people ended up uh, ended up winning here. I think. It's sad, and I think I wish the organization had better ownership. I think there's some good people working there. I think there's some great players working there. Some great fans, obviously, but, man, they are lost. Anna's coming up next. Backstreet is back. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. My fire, the one desire, believe when I say I want it that way. But we are two worlds apart, can't reach to your heart. Moda Center, uh, I got to say, I was there with you as the Backstreet Boys tour uh, came through Portland last night, uh, 85 tour dates the Backstreet Boys are embarking upon. Now, these were uh, these are guys that are now in their 40s and early 50s, not exactly the Backstreet Boys. Here to talk about it, Anna, who was there with me at the Backstreet Boys last night. And by the way, I should say, it was mostly Anna at the Backstreet Boys, and it was me just along for the ride and silver lining i'm going to point this out up front um the songs were a little cooler now than they were when i was in my 20s like i really did look down upon the backstreet boys we joked about the backstreet boys oh you backstreet boys so the songs were a little cooler not not bad also i'm there in support of my significant other who is who, who likes that kind of music child of the 90s and no lines at the bathrooms, as the audience was about 90 to 95% female. Uh, Anna, what did you make of the Backstreet Boys? I thought they were incredibly entertaining. Uh, I had forgotten how sort of wholesome they are. I mean, really, uh, like the style of their music and the things that they sing about. It totally took me back to a time when I was like in high school and in my late teens where I would be hanging out my out with my friends at a karaoke bar, and they would request Backstreet Boys songs and perform, and we would be the backup dancers for them. It was just a blast. Wait a minute, you in high school? You're hanging out at a karaoke bar? Okay, maybe that was a few years later, after high school. After- violation by your mother and father there. Uh, but give me an idea. Like for me, the it was it was wildly entertaining because I am a guy who, like other people, I'm dealing with my own limitations. I'm watching myself, even in a gym setting or riding a Peloton, 
I realized I can't quite be as fluid or smooth or as good as I was maybe in my mid to late 20s. And so I'm watching those guys up there gyrating and doing their little dance moves, and I'm I'm kind of inside. I'm I'm laughing and a little bit relating to them. And then I'm looking around the audience, and I'm realizing, like, this is suburbia. This is, you know, women ages 35 to 55 who know every damn song. I like, I knew like two songs. They knew every song and they were singing it. And then there were women walking around going, I should have married a Backstreet Boy. I was going to marry one. That was my plan. And, you know, their plan didn't come to fruition. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of the people watching that was so entertaining was just, just to see how enthusiastic people were to see these guys and the perspective that they gave when they were like, oh, we've been at this, you know, 20, 30 years. And you think back and you're like, oh, my gosh, these guys were so young when they started making their hit songs. So, and yeah, so it's it's looking at them, looking back at us. And, uh, you know, my preparation began well before the concert where I went into my closet and I was trying to find items. I, I wanted to dress like I was in the 90s again. And sadly, I didn't have to look that far because I don't really throw many clothes away. So I'm, I just wait for the styles to kind of cycle back and uh, did my hair in a 90s hairstyle. Like, I really, really got into it, as some others did. And I appreciated that. It's a, it's a whole industry. And, and frankly, like, look. I thought it was pretty interesting. It was a cool sociological experiment. I went along for the ride, but it also, I'm not going to lie, I, I really kind of enjoyed it more now than I did when I was younger and, and listening to their music because there's no pretense now. Like, we have a lot of music in today's world that is produced music, and you can tell, like, it's not all vocal talent. It's not all skill. Like, these guys are decent singers, but... By themselves, you would never, like, buy a solo album by any of the Backstreet Boys. But together, it's kind of an iconic period in time. And you go, okay, it was a great, it was a cool period in time. And look at these guys. And they toured the world. And, oh, by the way, 85 tour dates. Yeah, that's what got to us. That was, like, the grown-up part of, you know, what we were thinking as we were watching the concert. Like, hold on. They're in Portland today. I think they were in Spokane the day before. They're going to Vancouver, B.C. tonight. And we looked at the whole span of their their concert, their DNA World Tour, as it's called. I don't know why it's called DNA World Tour, but uh, and it's staggering. I mean, it's a show practically every day. Sometimes there's a break of a day in between, and they began in June, and they will be touring until November. And uh, when you think about that, and the amount of work that goes into it, and the performance level that you have to bring as an artist every night i mean that's where i sit back and i we were looking up their ages because it was like wait a minute these dudes are like 50 years old they're going on the road like this they're dancing and singing and we're thinking about like the exhaustion factor how do they have the stamina to do this night after night to crowd after crowd but so thought about the money that they're making and we thought the money makes it better yeah, and also you look at some of their stories. Like the one guy, I think his name is Nick, the blonde guy. He's the the one that was like 17, 18 years old, and everybody was, all the moms were all like, oh, my gosh, look at him, he's so cute. Uh, he's now like 50, and he's a little chunky, and he was sweating profusely. Like we were close enough. We had good seats. We were close enough to see like him huffing and puffing and sweating profusely. But then I was doing the math. I was looking around Moda Center, and I was thinking 20,000 seats, 
Average ticket price is about 100 bucks to get in there. Um, that's a $2 million event just with tickets. That doesn't include parking. It doesn't include concessions, merchandise, all of that. And you're talking about 85 tour dates. It, by the end of the concert, I had figured out these guys were each going to walk away with like $20 million. Like for what, five, six good months? So for people out there that are going, oh, yeah, give me a break. How hard could it be? I'll be right with you because for twenty or thirty million dollars, I'll go out, I'll gyrate a little bit, I'll grab the crotch, I'll sing, I'll sing some songs that are maybe, uh, maybe not, not all that sensical. And uh, it's just funny to me because I was, I was trying to think like we're looking up at the stage at the Backstreet Boys, they're performing, and everyone in the audience is going, look at how they aged, right? What do you think the Backstreet Boys were thinking as they were looking out into the crowd and no longer seeing 15-year-old girls or 12-year-old girls? They were seeing people in their 40s who maybe had put on a little bit of, you know, 40s weight. (laughs) You know, what's funny is that there were people there that had brought their kids. Like a friend of mine, I saw her, and she brought her son, her, you know, 8-year-old son, and so there is something a little bit multi-generational about their music, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm sure they're looking out of the crowd and, and realizing it's a little bit of a reflection of the time that has passed for them as well. But, you know, over and over, they were just expressing gratitude that like all these years later, some 20,000 people, is that 20,000 you said, uh, are, you know, filling uh, an arena or a stadium like that to come and watch them. And they'll be going to Europe as well. Like, they have, like, five shows in Germany. I don't know what's going on with Germany, but they love them some Backstreet Boys. I think the DNA tour is because it's, you know, they were in their 20s. It's probably all the moms they were hooking up with back in the day. You know, paternity test time as they roll through. Hey, we remember Portland back in 1997. We were here. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I actually think as I, as I watch them, you know, we think about rock stars and we think about the lifestyle that rock stars live. I actually think the Backstreet Boys would be an interesting documentary now because as you look into their history, a couple of them had tried to branch out with solo albums. I read this during the concert. Didn't really work out for them. They're trying. Um, you know, one of them, Nick, the guy, you know, he has had uh, been in rehab. One of the a different one uh, is battling alcohol. He's now sober. Like, they're, they've been through some stuff, like regular people, even though they live these charmed lives as 20-year-olds where they were touring the world. Oh, yeah. I'm sure, like, I'm sure they're capturing footage during this world tour for what will eventually become the documentary that they release at some point. And it, it, it would be pretty fascinating. Did you think the music was better now than it was back in the day? And by the way, did look, we haven't really talked about this. I feel like there were different points of the concert that they may have been lip syncing. Like, I think a lot of it was live. We were close enough to hear, like, didn't see their mouth moving and it matched and all that. But there were just a couple of the medley songs that had background singing on it that I kind of wondered, you know, is only the lead singer got a hot mic uh, as he's performing? I totally thought that, too. And, you know, I guess... I don't know. Maybe I forgive them for it because of their age. But when I'm watching them dancing and I'm like, how are they singing and dancing and not out of breath while performing like this? I I just kind of wrote it off. Like before, in other circumstances, I might be upset, but I don't know why. I, I forgive them on that. All right, Anna, thank you for popping in. Uh, now that you've taken me to the Backstreet Boys, I don't know what the equivalent concert is for me. 
that you know is that every guy would want to go see. But uh, I got to think of that. Why don't you do this, listeners? Tweet at me at John Canzano BFT or at Anna underscore Canzano. Tell us what is the equivalent. You know, should Anna have to go to like a Super Bowl with me? Like, actually, that would be a prize for you. Like, you would love to go to a Super Bowl. You love football. But what would be the equivalent if if I made a sacrifice in going to the Backstreet Boys concert last night? What would be the equivalent of that relationship? You tell us. And leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Maybe it's Bruce Springsteen. Maybe, uh, maybe, you know, back in the day, man. I, there are some concerts that I wish I would have seen when I was younger that I'm kicking myself for not making a point to go see back in the day. Michael Jackson never saw him in person. Prince only saw him at the Super Bowl halftime show uh, as a media member. Uh, it would have been way different experience to see him in concert. I did see Bruce Springsteen. I've seen Elton John. And man, is Elton John milking it or what? But I don't know what that, con- that concert is today that you have to go see i don't know if it's bruno mars i don't know if it's somebody else uh but i i think the performers of like my 20s the bands that were playing the performers the you know between madonna michael jackson prince i mean come on there were some epic performers that i didn't get to see kicking myself for it and how about sports performances like i saw michael jordan as a basketball player in person but i saw him late in his career i saw him with the wizards it wasn't Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls, in person with a ticket. Who are those must-see tickets in today's world? When you think about baseball, I go to Shohei Otani. I think Shohei Otani, you've got to think about him as one of the great performers. And we've talked about this on today's show, whether or not the Angels, for people who don't know, if you're just tuning in, Anaheim Angels owner, Los Angeles Angels, uh, Angels owner, is saying that uh, the team will... Uh, be considered, or he's shopping the team around, trying to figure out if a sale is the right move. I also think the Washington Nationals could be on the move. There are a couple of baseball franchises that could end up in different places. Um, I know Portland's not high on the list right now of Major League Baseball destinations. Vegas is going to be at the front of the line. Uh, I think after that, you, uh, you've you got some cities like Nashville, Vancouver, B.C., Portland, and probably now Salt Lake City, they have uh, now recently announced that they are shopping or looking for a team. But I think it's just a really interesting thing to think about who you have to see in today's world. Like, is Tom Brady a must-see in person? I've seen Tom Brady play in person. But if you haven't seen him play a game, an NFL game in person, and he's coming near you, is that somebody you have to see? Or Patrick Mahomes, is that somebody you have to see when it comes to the NFL? How about the NBA? Is it Steph Curry? Is it Kevin Durant? Uh, for Blazer fans, I know a lot of you feel like Damian Lillard is that guy, but who are those other players? LeBron James? Who are those other players that you know you have to see in the same way that I'm talking about you know, Prince or Michael Jackson or Madonna, and I'm kicking myself for not going in the 90s and seeing them perform at the top of their game? I mean, I think there are some athletic performances, and you know, 
apologies to TV. So much talk in the last month about how important TV is and how influential TV is and how television is driving the bosoms to uh, college sports and the NFL and Major League Baseball and the NBA's TV contract when it comes back around is going to be negotiated at a multiple of three over the last deal, maybe even more. So the NBA owners are all getting rich. The NFL is getting rich. The players are getting rich. And what's happening to fans? Fans are watching tradition and geography get thrown out the door. Fans are watching kickoff times be decided by television and not what's good for the consumer, right? We've already gone through that. It's kind of an old debate, but it's true. And so I think, like, while we're busy sort of heralding all the money that's coming into sports via television, I think we should also take a moment to reflect upon the fact that there are some experiences you get in person in being at games that you can't get anywhere else. You can't get it on television. For people who were there, side Moda Center, and saw Damian Lillard shoot that 37-foot shot in the face of Paul George and the Oklahoma City Thunder, you know what the hell I'm talking about. If you were there to see Barry Bonds you know, break the home run record, if you were there to see Usain Bolt run 100 meters faster than anybody in the world, if you were there when Galen Rupp won an Olympic silver medal in, in distance running, if you were there when Marcus Mariota scored a touchdown or when the Oregon State Beavers you know, became bowl eligible, if you were there in the stadium, you have something that is forever that television can never give you. You have the ability to say, hey, you know what? I saw that. I was there. And I think a lot of that is being lost in this era where, you know, apologies to, again, to television, where television steps to the front of the line and acts like it's the most important part of the sporting event. It's just not anymore. It never was. Television should have ideally been there to hold the hand of the sport and help usher it into living rooms, mostly for people who couldn't get to the stadium or weren't close enough to the stadium or, you know, who could afford to go to the stadium all the time or even in the case of, you know, some fans who can afford to go there anytime nowadays. You know, I was in Moda Center last night for this Backstreet Boys concert, and I was looking around, and Anna said, what are you thinking about? This was before the concert started. And I was said, I said, you know, I was thinking about all the money. I was thinking about all the lower bowl tickets for Blazer games last season that were empty. And the fact that, you know, these tickets are not cheap. Like, a lot of families cannot afford to go to an NBA game. Can't afford to take the family. Can't afford to go eat at the arena. Can't afford to park at the arena. Can't, you know, the, this is a, it's become a corporate event. It's a write-off, and it's for the affluent and the wealthy. Or in the case of, you know, some Blazer fans who just say, hey, we're, gonna dis- we're not going to take the vacation. We're not going to buy the car. We're going to put our disposable income into, um, you know, our entertainment income, our vacation income into buying season tickets. That's fine. Bless you if you're doing that. But, man. What we have lost in television hijacking our sports world is the ability to say, I was there. Did you see it? Hey, were you there? I was there in 1977 when the Blazers won that championship. Or I was there when I saw Kenny Wheaton score at Autzen Stadium break Washington's back. Or I was there in overtime as Oregon State beat Oregon in a Civil War classic all those years ago and the goalposts came down and if you were there, you know what I'm talking about. Let's celebrate the idea that you can sit in your living room on a HD TV any day of the week 
and watch a sporting event all across the world. Celebrate that. It's cool. I get it. I, you know, I'm with you. But let's not stop going to the stadium. Because if we stop going to the stadiums, if we stop taking our kids to games, if we stop, if it stops being affordable, then we're losing something. We're, we're becoming horse racing. You know, people stop going to the track. Why? Because you, you could bet a horse race anywhere. Well, part of the beauty of going to the track was going down to the paddock and watching the horses and seeing the jockeys and watching them walk by and hearing the trumpets and the start and watch them get into the start gate and, you know, the sounds and the sights and the smells of the, of the tracks. And now what do we have? We have empty tracks. We have paramutual racing. We have, uh, you know, the ability for you to sit somewhere else and bet on a horse race in Saratoga or Golden Gate Park or whatever. And in the end, we all really lose something when that happens. Now, I have a great column tomorrow that I want you to be sure you read. I have been working on this for several days. I'm going to give you a little tease. If you are an Oregon Duck football fan, you're going to want to read me at johnconzano.com tomorrow morning. If you are a college football fan, period, you're going to want to read me at johnconzano.com tomorrow morning. Again, if you are already a subscriber, you're going to get it delivered direct to your email inbox in real time. So if you want to grab that, do it today. Go to johnconzano.com right now. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. Whatever works for you, just make sure you don't miss anything. I'm here for you. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time. I appreciate everybody out there that makes this radio show part of their day. I'm having fun with it. I hope you're having fun listening to it. I want everybody to have a great evening. And I'm going to let the Backstreet Boys sign us off. Like, it feels like, you know, there is a, there is a, uh, you know, a full circle moment here as we can let the Backstreet Boys take us home. Oh, today by telling us what that concert would be what is that dream concert that we should all be seeing like what's the michael jackson prince madonna concert that you have to see today catch you tomorrow